Hello, my fellow historians. Welcome back. I'm Aziz. With me, as always, is Ashea. And this is Balar Reredus, where we look for the foreshadowing we missed, new depth in the world building, a better understanding of the plot lines, a greater familiarity with the characters. Not great pronunciation, though, apparently. And more fun than you can fit in all seven hells. This week, we have Catlin 9. The gang meets the phrase, a.k.a. the one where Rob trades a crossing for a marriage. John 8, the one where Eamon reveals his past, a.k.a. the gang gives John Valyrian steel. Daenerys 7, the one where Khal Drogo is wounded, a.k.a. the gang meets Miri Mazdur. Tyrion 8, the one with the Battle of the Green Fork, a.k.a. the gang meets Shay. Catelyn 10, the gang fights in the Whispering Woods, a.k.a. the one where they capture Jamie. Daenerys 8, the one where Mary uses black blood magic, a.k.a. the gang fights Drogo's blood rival. And Arya 5, the one where they execute Ned, a.k.a. the one where we learned how different this series really was. We're nearing the end of Game of Thrones. As I said last time, this episode, or rather these last two episodes, are really dominated by Daenerys. There's a lot of final chapters uh, for a lot of characters, mostly in this next episode. We had Ned's final chapter last time. We have Arya's final chapter this time. And we'll have the final chapters for Sansa, Tyrion, Catelyn. Well, everyone next time. (laughs) Everyone else. And Daenerys will be the one with the most chapters, though. She's got four of these last batch. But there's, of course, major things happening outside of Daenerys' chapters, obviously. A few quick announcements since we've been off for a little while. It's, it's really nice to get back to the status quo, doing podcasts regularly with y'all. We did have our long journey to Ireland and returned home to Atlanta for Dragon Con, right? All in a row there. We did a podcast describing our adventures, including conversations with George R. R. Martin, a few new tidbits, a few new pieces of world building and information that y'all will find interesting, as well as some filming locations and just some good times. Well, that episode is not on our podcast feed. It's YouTube only, and that's because it's filled with pictures and videos. It is a video. Most of our episodes, the vast, vast majority of our episodes are both video and podcast, but this one is highly visual So it's going to stay on YouTube only. So if you want to check it out, you know where to find it. Westeros History YouTube channel. Also, timestamps and fun titles have been added to the earlier podcast version episode. So you can easily find a specific chapter. For example, I went back and named the prologue. The gang meets the others, a.k.a. the one with Sir Waymar's dance class. And... So like I said, timestamps, you can look at the podcast description and see the timestamp for each episode. That's true for most of the videos as well. We're still finishing up the last couple of sets of timestamps on those. Now, the same is true if you're on the members feed for Patreon, which we call the vault. Anyone who gets anyone who signs up for Patreon gets access to the same thing. All those episodes have been updated with timestamps. But also, if you're a patron, very soon you'll get a bonus episode, which is an edit of all 15 Eddard chapters as one episode. So if you want to go back and listen to Valar reread us again with a different focus, you'll be able to do just Eddard chapters or just Arya chapters, which will be up next. And that'll be true for all the POVs by book. Uh, So, of course, by the end of A Game of Thrones, we'll be posting the full chapter versions of each POV. So there'll be a Tyrion batch. There'll be all 11 Catlin chapters in one batch, et cetera. So you can re-listen to these, or if you haven't listened yet, you can do it that way. Uh, shout out to Girls Gone Canon, whose podcast is based around that format. They have done all the Ned chapters already, 
and they're doing which are who are they on right now they're on john right now and it's going really well so check them out if you want another look at this style format of course also when you join patreon you get the gagasos bonus episode the aziz versus a dance with dragons episode epilogue episode and the Aziz versus Pate prologue episode, in addition to some other bonus content from Valar Reredis. We've got a couple of Where Are They Now episodes. There's a couple of panels from past Con of Thrones that we never put up on the main feed, and other stuff like that. Lots of good bonus material, and that's just one benefit to signing up for Patreon. So if you are so inclined, head on over to patreon.com history of Westeros and find the level that fits best for you. But any level gets you into the semi-private feeds and gets you the bonus episodes. All right. I think the uh, the one we're going to spend the most time on is this first one, Catlin 9. And it's interesting that that's the one that came out to be the longest. I think maybe it's just because, you know, some of these are battles. We're talking about a lot of battles. Battles don't have as much foreshadowing. We have plenty to say about them. Uh, there is some foreshadowing. There's characterizations that come up later. But uh, in some ways, there's less to say about them. But, of course, um, there's surprises in the things we find to talk about every once in a while. Because, you know, before we recap the chapter, before we reread it, we don't always know what we're going to find. So let's do it. Catelyn 9, the gang meets the phrase, a.k.a. the one where Rob trades a crossing for a marriage. It's the one where we first start to see the Blackfish's major impact as a commander and head of scouts, killing both enemy scouts and ravens from the twins, while also being the man responsible for looking for other ways across the river, which he does not find. The first line of the chapter is right here. As the host trooped down the causeway through the black bog of the neck and spilled out into the riverlands beyond, Catelyn's apprehensions grew. Their precarious position strategically is one of the many things bothering Cat, but of course there is so much more. I mean, it's war. I mean, of course, there's plenty of reasons to feel apprehensive. But not only that, they're outnumbered. And Rob is in charge. She's worried about him as a son, worried about him with his inexperience just lots to worry about can't blame her now danny has betrayal in her future told to her by prophecy but the signs for the starks are just as ominous here though less magical less apparent in that sense they're they're probably a bit more subtle but on reread they really stand out i think the first time through it's hard to catch them but this time it's there it's there all over Theon's penchant for making light of death continues here and will continue throughout the rest of the book and into the next book until he's, well, until he's Ramsey'd. And this is paired with Kat's worries about her family. In this one, the seeds for beating the Lannisters in the field were sown, but also the seeds for the Red Wedding, though at the time it wasn't a sure thing. Well, it was in the sense that George had planned to write it from the beginning, but not in the sense of, you know, in world where everything just had to go a certain way. And all while Theon's shadow hangs over Winterfell. Do you think he means to betray us to the Lannisters, my lady? Robert Glover asked gravely. Catelyn sighed. If truth be told, I doubt even Lord Frey knows what Lord Frey intends to do. He has an old man's caution and a young man's ambition and has never lacked for cunning. Looking ahead from this dialogue, Cat proves far more accurate in reading Walder Frey than she does Littlefinger, saying that she doubts even... He knows what he will do while saying it will come down to ambition and cunning is a bullseye take. That's exactly what he does. She mentions his pride as a major factor later, and that is very true. Perhaps the most important factor, really. 
He doesn't like that some of the other lords look down on the phrase, and the Lannisters are a major source of that, given how much Tywin looks down on everyone, really. Walder would not have uh, betrayed Rob if not for the marriage to Jane Westerling, most likely. That was a matter of pride and ambition, as Walder was insulted by the broken promise, uh, Rob's choice of what was, in his mind, a lesser house, and the loss of the opportunity to be part of the royal family in a new kingdom. So that was a lot, you know, if you care about pride and ambition, those are, those are big things to lose. But that's fairly straightforward. It's all out in the open for the Mars part. We don't, we don't really need to get into deep analysis of why Walder Frey was upset. Less straightforward is the choice of Robert Glover as Kat's dialogue partner here. I want to draw your attention to that. Now, with Theon close by, we have many of the elements for the later northern plots spearheaded by Wyman Manderley and Robert Glover himself. Though Robert's brother Galbart is Lord of Deepwood Mott, he meaning Galbart, has no children and is unmarried. So Robet is the heir, and Robet's son Gawain is next. However, Robet's family is captive on the Iron Islands, where things stand now. They were taken by Asha, who sent them off to house Harlaw's seat of Ten Towers, which is held by the reader. Robet may not know where Galbart is either at the moment, though he likely still lives. Galbart will later be part of the group sent into the Neck to find Howland Reed. Rob sends him there with Rob's true will while carrying false copies of that will. So we expect that Rob's instructions were to name John King in the North. But right now, we don't know where Galbart or his companions are. Mage Mormont's with him as well. And that's a kind of a mystery. So both the Glovers are looking to be important in TWOW because, like I just said, Galbart is carrying this important information. And Robit, well... As we well know, Asha later lost the Glover seat of Deepwood Mott and her freedom to Stannis, who also has Theon as a captive. So it's just, like I said, all this comes back around. And why is this so important for Robert Glover? Well, because, like I said, he's the heir to Deepwood Mott. It's his family's seat. It's his family that's been captured by Asha. And so Stannis having Asha is possibly uh, a way for them to do an exchange. But he's the man who escorts Davos to Wyman Manderley's secret chamber where that North Remembers scene take place, that uber-popular, perhaps most popular of all chapters, according to the polls on Tower of the Hand. Robert is very grateful to Stannis for retaking his seat, though obviously he's still in great fear over his family being captors of the Ironborn, or captives of the Ironborn, rather. Recall, too, that in that scene with Wyman and Davos and Robert Glover, the fourth person is Wex Pike, Theon's squire. So again, another connection to back to this moment. So many of the other important players speak up here too. Galbert Glover talks just like Robit, plus Wendell and Willis Manderley and Roos Bolton and the great John and Rickard Karstark. Quote. Roos Bolton nodded. Go in there alone in your hits. He can sell you to the Lannisters, throw you in a dungeon, or slit your throat as he likes. Bruce knows how a dirty player would play. After all, he's a good person to go for. What's the dirtiest thing someone could do right here? Let's ask Bruce Bolton. And of course, talking about selling him back to the Lannisters, that's exactly what Bruce does to, to Jamie. He sells him back to Tywin with the promise that, uh, hey, remember that I did this. I'm doing you a favor. And of course, when he does that, he's selling out the Starks, so to speak. And uh, for him in particular, there is this quote from Cat that nails it, really nails it. Did you teach him wisdom as well as valor, Ned, she wondered? Did you teach him how to kneel? The graveyard that the Seven Kingdoms were full of brave men who had never learned that lesson. 
So yeah, that's about Rob. Of course, she's she's worried about her son and how he's gonna gonna deal with all this. And it does seem that Ned taught him battle wisdom, and that served him well. Rob was too much his father's son in ways that harmed him later, perhaps. In fact, this bit we just talked about with regards to Jane Westerling. But that's really relevant to thinking about Ned's own shame over Jon Snow. We don't know what Rob ever thought of Jon and his father and Ashara or whoever Rob thought Jon's mother was. He certainly had his own opinion, his own thoughts. But as the one Stark child, other than Rickon, who we don't have a POV on, we never really know what he thinks about all that. And we don't really know what goes through his head when he decides to marry Jane. But, (laughs) marry Jane. (laughs) But he does certainly have thoughts on it. And likely the way his father carried himself impacted those decisions. So when we get to that, we'll dive a little deeper into how Rob perceived how his father would handle such a thing. But I want to bring it up now because, well, it's been it's with Rob the whole time. Rob's acting like his father is a big part of who he is and how his father taught him, how he emulates him is a huge part of everything. So we want to know whether he was disappointed in how his father handled John or whether he thought it was proper or whether he thought his father deserved a pass for breaking his honor because he's so honorable all the other times, or if that's some big stain on who he is. Now, it's also not just their own honor, because, of course, in Rob's case, he didn't want to dishonor Jane. And how he treats his uh, wife, or his wife-to-be in that case, also reflects on how Ned treated women in his life, because that's Rob's main influence. So I think there's a lot to be said about that, But there's also a lot of it mysterious because we don't really know what Rob thought. So his own pledge to to Jane and his own sense of duty to the phrase and all that is a really interesting back and forth and something to keep in mind. But in this line, at the end of the chapter, she perhaps trusts her son a bit too much. Quote, he had never seemed more manly to her than he did in that moment. Boys might play with swords but it took a lord to make a marriage pact, knowing what it meant. Rob clearly does not grasp the enormity of a pact with Walder Frey. He does not understand how proud Walder is and does not know the power of pride in a man that is so uh, holding tight to his pride. Before the Red Wedding, the phrase do fight bravely and in great numbers for Rob. Walder may have had in the back of his mind that this may not work out. He may have always had an outplanned But his commitment was full at the time. That just changed (laughs) based on circumstances. Now, let's take a look at Walder a bit here, some conversations. Walder yells at his heir, Stevron, here. Father, Sir Stevron said reproachfully, you forget yourself. Lady Stark is here at your invitation. Did I ask you? You are not Lord Frey yet, not until I die. Do I look dead? I'll hear no instructions from you. Stevron seems like a legitimate good person. This is not good Frey, bad Frey. Stevron is like this all the time. Had Lord Walder died, Stevron would have been Lord and would have stayed loyal to Rob, probably. Maybe not. He would have been upset about the marriage breaking of the broken marriage pact as well. But I doubt he would have done this. He wouldn't have done the Red Wedding. I don't think he's that kind of guy. He would have chosen a more honorable way to express his displeasure. He might have been okay with the the Edmure marriage instead. That might have been fine. Uh, I feel he would have balked at the Red Wedding. I mean, it's a really big deal. 
uh, you know, breaking guest right and all that, setting their family up to be remembered this way for generations, if not forever, effectively forever. So who knows? But in any case, he died of wound, died from wounds, suffered in, in battle, fighting for Rob. Uh, somewhat mysteriously, by the way, since his wounds are mentioned to not be so bad. But uh, something happened. A theory I subscribe to as very possible is that Black Walder, who was on the campaign too, helped Stavron along to his death somehow to move up in the line of succession. This, at the time, this is not much of a theory, meaning right here where we are in a Game of Thrones. But over time, almost everyone in Black Walder's path has died. So Black Walder very, uh, very much rising through the ranks of the Frey um, heirs there. Oh, Black Walder, ram lam <laughs> Nice. But that's a story for later. More Black Walder is coming later when Black Walder gets going. But right now we're just setting the stage. Now, Kat's offer to, uh, to make herself the hostage is brave and correct, I think. I think it was the, the best move given circumstances and recognizing that it's correct and taking that risk on herself is, is brave. And it's her analysis of the situation is another bullseye. It's neat that um, Perwin is her counterpart as the Frey hostage. They do like a little hostage exchange. Not only was he the one left by his family as a hostage here, but he was not invited to the Red Wedding. He's made of nobler stuff than most of his kin. He takes after uh, Stevron, perhaps, or Olivar, ones who liked Rob or who weren't the type of character to do something so dirty. And, of course, his family knows that. They knew he would not take part, and they thought maybe he was a liability, including him in the plan. They didn't want him to, they didn't want to take any risk that he would tell. So I admit, before I knew what a bloody scumbag Walter Frey was, a part of me liked how blunt he was in his conversation with Kat. So over time, well, I didn't really like him, but I still appreciate the bluntness of his conversation as far as how much it, how revealing it is. Now, of course, I don't mean the gross parts about his far too young wife, who, by the way, is probably sleeping with Black Walter. But again, that's another topic for another time. But uh, it's not lines like this either. I'm not a fan of this, although it's, uh, it's, it's noteworthy. Now my bastards presume to teach me courtesy, Lord Walter complained. I'll speak any way I like, damn you. I've had three kings to guest in my life, and queens as well. Do you think I require lessons from the likes of you, Ragger? No. Uh, yeah, see, I don't think he does. But I, the part I like is cutting to the chase with regards to the problem of conflicting vows. This is, a, this is really good stuff. It's something George likes to do on occasion. He gives great points, cutting poignant logic to bad people, which makes the lesson harder to take. Quote, why should my boys hurry south to die? All those who did go south are running north again. From a strategic perspective, he's saying you can't win. Though the subtext is you can't win if I'm against you too. But you might win if I'm on your side. And he's right about that. Because the phrase have a lot of people and their help could really swing things. And Wilder knows that. But this is not the cutting poignant logic I refer to, though it is fair to call it that from a human perspective. Because while Walder's reasons might be cynical here, it's a good point that challenges Westerosi honor codes in general. Despite how normal it is for Westerosi lords to send their sons off to battle, I still find it hard to argue against this, even, even from a modern perspective, even if I try to take that away. It's just not correct to send your sons into battles that look potentially hopeless, no matter what time you live in. I don't think that's a modern, overly modern thing to say. 
because clearly there are people in this setting who agree with me or who I agree with them, what might be more appropriate to say. Now, Walder says that same thing, though he doesn't make it about fear. He doesn't make it about, oh, I'm afraid to lose my sons. He just points out how bad it looks for her. Quote. Don't you try and frighten me, my lady. Your husband's in some traitor's cell under the Red Keep. Your father's sick, might be dying, and Jamie Lannister's got your brother in chains. What do you have that I should fear? That son of yours? Rob is actually worth fearing, as it turns out. But keep in mind that Rob's great skills have not been seen yet. To this point, he's not been in a battle. No one knows that he's some sort of commander prodigy. That's going to develop shortly. So if we set aside strategy, though, let's look to the honor side of this, as Kat does. That's the line of argument she goes with here. Quote, You swore an oath to my father, Catelyn reminded him. He bobbed his head side to side, smiling. Oh, yes, I said some words, but I swore oaths to the crown, too, it seems to me. Joffrey is the king now, and that makes you and your boy and all those fools out there no better than rebels. If I had the sense the gods gave a fish, I'd help the Lannisters boil you all. Mm. Jamie says his knightly oath to protect those who can't protect themselves conflicted with his oath to guard the king. And he's completely right. Those vows do conflict. And it's part of the problem with vows in the first place. We're all far too ignorant and naive to what the future holds to be sure what a solemn promise can't be that or to be sure that a solemn promise can't be abused or fall into conflict like this, where you have no choice but to break one or more vows in order to uphold another. So it's a really interesting point that comes up throughout several times uh, in the Song of Ice and Fire. And arguably it comes up before this with Ned's fever dreams and well, just Ned's sense of duty to Robert and his memories of the Tower of Joy, his duty to his sister. But this is the first time we see like a, a bad guy kind of bring it up, even though to be fair on first read, you don't actually know Walder's a bad guy yet. But regardless, it's a really interesting theme that I think George is, is right to t- touch in on. And to hone in on in other places. Like I said, Jamie's and other major places comes up when talking to Brienne. So Walder issues several more grievances about marriage alliances and how Riverrun has always looked down on him. And that, of course, is Walder's pride. The key to everything in this scene, if there's any one thing you can pin it on. Because in my opinion, turning on Rob is one thing. Doing it on doing it the way he did, that's another. And in that, we see how much Walder is like Tywin, even as he denigrates him. Most things can be forgiven or amended, but the debt of pride for such men is a prime, perhaps the prime example. And George R. R. Martin drops it right on us when Lord Walder speaks of Big and Little Walder and Lysa Tully and the fostering of Sweet Robin. Quote, She frosted up as if I'd suggested selling her boy to a mummer's show or making a eunuch out of him. And when Lord Aaron said the child was going to Dragonstone to foster with Stannis Baratheon, she stormed off without a word of regrets, and all the hand could give me was apologies. What good are apologies, I ask you? There we have the pride bit. Apologies don't work when you're that proud. Apologies do work if you aren't that proud quite often. It just shows how selfish a person like this truly is. It's kind of a reveal. It's like you're not, this is what your pride leads you to. Even when doing things in the name of their family, it's still this that matters the most. Um, not everyone in his family has the same level of pride for the, the name house Frey. They see pride in a different way. I mean, there's something to be said for, are you really proud of being the family that's remembered for the Red Wedding? That's just a different form of pride. So it's a very loaded passage because by bringing up Sweet Robin's fostering, Walder is bringing up what got John Aaron killed, which means I don't think Lysa even cared that it was Lord Walder who would be fostering her son 
This is another problem with pride. She wasn't looking down on Lord Walder. She didn't want it to be him or Stannis or Tywin. It wasn't about which Lord. It was about any Lord. She didn't want Sweet Robin fostered with anyone, which gave Littlefinger an opening to stoke her fears and pull her strings, saying, oh, look, they're trying to take your son away. No matter what, they're going to take your son away. The only way to stop this is to murder your husband. So that's yet another issue with having an overbearing sense of pride. You see insults where there aren't any. That's Walder for you. So Kat had to dance around that and make use of Walder's pride. She had to avoid it and make use of it. And like Rob's marriage pledge and that of Arya's, plus the promise to ward big and little Walder, there was really no other choice. And here's another quote to show us just how ominous this scene is looking. A swollen red sun hung low against the western hills when the gates of the castle opened. A setting sun, the west, and red, swollen red. That's, yep, like I said, that's ominous. Theon is uh, a constant counter to Cat's caution. He wants the easy fight. He's always talking about the glory. He's really a good, this is a good call from Joe Buckley saying that he's got the boys of summer way of thinking, something that Catelyn is going to experience a lot more of when she starts treating with Renly's army next book. Further evidence of Hoster's tutelage of Cat. This is interesting because if you recall, for a while there, Hoster thought Cat would be his heir until Edmure was born. And that is comes up for some other characters who are treated as an heir until a son is born. And it just goes to show that when they get this education, these women are just as capable, if not more so, than a lot of the men out there. It's just a lot of times they aren't given that education. Well, in the case of Cat, she did have some of it, and she uses it pretty well. And there's a, a good catch from Joe here as well. He points out the quote, if Lord Tywin wants my help, he can bloody well ask for it. Well, I, we're not, I'm not sure it's clear exactly who does the asking later on, but um, yeah, they do certainly work together. I'm pretty sure it might be Tywin who reaches out, but it might be Lord Walter says, hey, look, uh, after this thing happened, maybe I could switch sides. Either way, <laughs> he ended up working together without too much, uh, too much trouble. I wonder, too, if Catelyn had tried the Edmure method, you know, saying, hey, you, you talked about how you wanted to marry one of your daughters to marry Edmure for so long. Well, maybe she should have started off with that instead of going straight to Rob. Or we don't know how the negotiations went, of course. It's off, it's off page. But it's an interesting what-if scenario. couple of random questions and uh, add-ons here, miscellaneous bits. Um, I noticed that uh, the last line of the chapter is for good or ill. Her son had thrown the dice, which I think is a little Julius Caesar meta. Rob crossed the Green Fork when doing this and Caesar crossed the Rubicon, which is the border to the Roman Republic. It was a point of no turning back like Rob's because uh, he was crossing the border. And that's, a, you know, that's like an invasion at that point. And the famous line attributed to him when he did so, meaning Caesar, is the die is cast. So we have the dice again. Her, her for good or ill, her son has thrown the dice. The Rubicon is named for its red water and is shallow, which harkens to the Ruby Ford, which is on the Green Fork. And it's named for Rhaegar's rubies. So, I don't know. George is a big fan of history. He might have snuck that one in there as a little uh, nod to Rob. There's definitely some Frey Pie foreshadowing here, or at least it works as Frey Pie foreshadowing here. Good catch from John Hagee in her Facebook group. The line, Catelyn would gladly have spitted the careless old man and roasted him over a fire. <laughs> and of course, he uses this phrase, boil uh, himself, that is, Walder Frey. Wouldn't it boil them to blah, blah, blah? He says that a couple times. 
So there's a lot of, you know, eating people <laughs> references here under the on the sly. Uh, Nina Friel says Walter Frey calling on Jared to back him up is a great catch uh, underlying how much of a faithless bad actor he is, meaning Jared. Jared's role seems to be recurring in that he backs up outrageous lies with a straight face. Here's his biggest lie much later in uh, Dance with Dragons, if you don't recall. He's the one who says this at the Merman's Court to Wyman Manderley and Davos. Uh, quote, The Red Wedding was the young wolf's work. He changed into a beast before our eyes and tore out the throat of my cousin Jingle Bell, a harmless simpleton. He would have slain my lord too, my lord father too, if Sir Wendell had not put himself in the way. So when Nina refers to his outrageous lies outrageous is is no exaggeration it might be an understatement i mean that is ridiculous right he changed into a beast <laughs> and tore out the throat of my cousin jingle but like wow yet people just have to go along with that you know wyman mandersley is like yep i knew my son was brave that's his response but davos just flat out calls him liar and well he is and jared of course is also one of the ones who ends up in the fray pies along with uh Rhaegar and simon so that's what he gets. That's his karma. Uh, comment from our friend Mangu, who says, uh, between Ned and Kat, they had the info that Lysa and Littlefinger lied to them about the Lannisters and John Aaron, but they never had time to sit down and share information, put their heads together to kind of figure all that out. Ah, alas, they had the info, but not the time or the, um, yeah, or the, uh, the time together. Okay, that is all for Catelyn 9. Let us move on to the next one. John 8, the one where Aemon reveals his past, a.k.a. the gang gives John Valyrian steel. They've looked again for Benjen since his men were found, but no luck. Bloodraven's no help in that department, which might be a curiosity by itself. He has led people to things before. Uh, not everything, you know, There's he can't do be a part of everything. But, you know, blame Bloodraven is a thing in our fandom, and it's fair to wonder about his influence. It does seem to be here in this chapter in general, because Mormont's Raven talks quite a bit. And Mormont himself starts the chapter off thusly, quote, Are you well, Snow? He says he is, but he isn't inside, He we know from his point of view. The main reason is obvious enough, the massive pain in his hand. But there's also some psychology, some foreshadowing, lots of John's parentage, and some very cool ice and fire meta here, quote. At first, it had felt as if his hand were still aflame, burning day and night. Only plunging it into basins of snow and shaved ice gave any reveal at all. John thanked the gods that no one but ghosts saw him writhing on his bed, whimpering from the pain. And when at last he did sleep, he dreamt, and that was even worse. In the dream, the corpse he fought had blue eyes, black hands, and his father's face. But he dared not tell Mormont that. Hmm. And a few paragraphs later, he thinks... John did not understand why that, why that should be or what it may mean, but it frightened him more than he could say. I think we have a good idea, though. A dead Lord Stark rising? Crypts of Winterfell? Is that you? But it's also foreshadowing Ned's death, right? There's no more Ned's chapters, and he's going to die at the end of this episode, which is just uh, five chapters from now. So it's probably both. Both Crypts of Winterfell foreshadowing and Ned's death. And fire repeatedly slammed into ice, what he's doing with his fist, <laughs> trying to cancel each other out. He's trying to, the, the cold to block out the heat, or at least balance each other out. Two forces of nature that need to be in balance. But they also need to be balanced out for John. He needs to learn who he is. 
but he's a long way from that. And Longclaw, with its white wolf pommel, symbolizes where he'll probably wind up, embracing his stark side, the one he grew up with, the one he's familiar with, the one associated with the only place he's ever lived. But the blade itself was forged in Valyria, the other half of the fire-slash-ice combo that makes him who he is, so why not have that concept reflected in his weapon? Yeah, why not? But John does not feel he's earned it, and because this is normally the sort of thing passed down from father to son, he ironically thinks that, no, Eddard's my father, not Mormont. You're not taking his place. It's an interesting reaction, but you can kind of understand why he feels that way, given all his identity issues. And from our point of view, his Stark heritage is, is hazy, uh, but it is there, and his Targ tar- tar- heritage is hidden. Um, from his perspective, he doesn't know about it at all. And his Stark side, yeah. So his, his view of himself is pretty similar to the reader view at this point, uh, minus readers who don't know he's Targaryen. <laughs> it's a bit confounding to his questions of identity that he's given a sword from a house that has little to do with either. I'm not complaining. Just pointing out what I think is one of the many ways George set out to obscure the truth of John's parentage. Might as well, hey, give him a sword from some third family that's not related to anything. That'll, that'll throw them off. On the other hand, pun intended. It ties him to Danny in that they are both being mentored by a Mormont. Of course, Jorah wants to be a lot more than a mentor, but it's still a parallel. On the other other hand, or white hand in this case, this is also the chapter where we learn Alistair Thorne is sent south with the hand of Jafer Flowers to show proof to the crown that, that whites are real. Of course, separating John from Thorne is a big part of the move, but getting someone else in Thorne's place as mastered arms is a good idea too. He probably shouldn't have ever had that job. He was not good at it. The new master of arms is Andrew Tarth, maybe a brother or cousin of Brienne's father, but but we don't know for sure. Also, Sean's sworn enemy at Ice and Fire Club. <laughs> In any case, uh, Andrew Tarth is killed by wildlings, led by the Weeper at the Bridge of Skulls at a Storm of Swords. It's the same battle where Bowen Marsh is badly injured. Of course, the wildlings are dangerous, uh, but currently in A Dance with Dragons, they are allied with humanity for reasons similar to what Mormont tries to impart to John here in this chapter. Gior starts a line of thought that culminates in John's final chapter with that brilliant point about it not mattering who else sits the Iron Throne when the dead come walking. Here we have something much sneakier. But in a way, Gior is wrong in a way, right? It does matter who sits the Iron Throne. And given what will be needed, humanity will need to stand together. Strong leadership will be needed. The kind of thing Mance Raider does to the Wildlings, uniting all these disparate clans. That's the kind of leadership that's needed. That's what John needs to do, what Danny needs to do, what Tyrion needs to do, whoever else needs to do it. It needs to be done. Sansa, whoever. Perhaps, you know, it's, it's a lot like Aegon the Conqueror, although for different reasons. Um, you know, some people think Aegon was planning, preparing the Seven Kingdoms for fighting the others. I don't think that. I don't see any evidence for it. But that type of leadership where everyone is fighting together is needed. However, it happens. This next quote is, uh, well, it's exactly the kind of thing we've been looking for with this reread um, among the top things we're looking for, that is, which is evidence of brand foreshadowing that we think we missed. So here we go. We have white shadows in the woods and unquiet dead stalking our halls and a boy sits the Iron Throne, he said in disgust. The raven laughed shrilly. Boy, 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 boy. (laughs) The raven, the blood raven is laughing about a boy king. Damn it. George is laughing at us. The Raven is pretty talkative in this chapter, though, um, and that might be on purpose to kind of mask the interesting comments amongst the mundane comments. It asks for corn, which is meaningful because the other time we heard of a Raven asking for corn is in Bran's coma dream. Of course, Bran does feed corn to some of the other Ravens in the tower, but 
actual ravens asking for corn well this is meant i think this is meant to be a connection and later in this chapter another piece of this corn puzzle is given when we are told by maester Eamon that mormont's raven is quote a rare bird because most of them prefer meat so one that loves corn is a bit unusual and thus is part of why i think that's it's meant to remind us that the three-eyed crow asked for corn also so i think this is some of the earliest evidence that mormont's raven is a mouthpiece for blood raven Back in this chapter, though, the raven also does this, which can be read as another inside joke about John's parentage. Quote, I had hoped for some word of my father. Father, taunted the old raven, bobbing its head as it walked across Mormont's shoulders. Father. I say that because he used the word taunted, right? Like taunting. Like you've got the wrong person in in mind, in head. (laughs) Speaking of heads, you can see the, you can read the bird bobbing his head while walking across Mormont's shoulders bobbing his head, walking across Mormon's shoulders, right? Foreshadowing for Ned's head being removed in a few chapters from now? Mm, maybe, maybe. Here's another peculiar one, quote. Altogether harder to ignore than a glorified crow. Crow? John thought the raven sounded fairly indignant. Hmm. Blood Raven was himself a brother of the Night's Watch, a crow himself. He might not have liked that name. I don't know. I wonder... You got to wonder why the, the raven would sound indignant there. Maybe just because a raven doesn't want to be called a crow, but he wasn't being called a crow. He's referring to Alistair Thorne. Here's another quote. We ought to have remembered the long night has come before. Oh, 8,000 years is a lo- good while to be sure. Yet, if the night's watch does not remember, who will? Who will, chimed the talkative raven. Who will? Mm. So, like I said, surely not everything the bird says is the product of Blood Raven. For example, in this chapter, he repeats the word claw after hearing the name Longclaw. And I don't think that's noteworthy. It's just evidence that the bird talks, right? It's, it's, I, don't, I can't see a reason for that to be an important clue. If everything the raven said was from Blood Raven, that would be a bit much. So, especially because it talks so much. It's a really talkative bird, like he says. But if this is one of those times, and I could see why, given the mention of the long night, the who will, who will remember you know that's well brendan remembering or reminding people to remember the weapons uh, that are used to fight the weapons and tactics that are used to fight against the others in the long night well he would agree that's important who will who will now blood raven's presence is also remembered indirectly as john thinks of finding ghost here quote They had been riding off with the other pups, but John had heard a noise and turned back. And there he was, white fur almost invisible against the drifts. A noise, like I said, I maintain it's super unlikely that Ghost made a noise. The references to Ghost making no sounds are plenty, including this very emphatic one in Dance with Dragons, where John thinks of him as, quote, silence on four feet. Now, he does occasionally make a little noise walking around, but this pup could barely stand on his own and doesn't make any noises with his mouth. So again, I think that was Bloodraven. But moving on to someone who knew Bloodraven in life, the scene with Eamon and his choices. This is so powerful. George really nailed it with Eamon in general, and I think that's really saying something because he nails it on the regular anyway. So he really nailed it with Eamon. And how interesting is it that vows and honor are such a big part of this chapter, right after a chapter where we discuss conflicting oaths with Lord Walder. Uh, I have to point out that in my notes, I wrote conflicting oaths with Lord Walder. Very Sounds like fitting. something that they would, they're fighting over food and, and horse meal, you know. <laughs> so Eamon is a better vessel for this message, but it's a very similar point when the characterizations are stripped away. 
meaning, well, honor in the notion that Ned fathering a bastard tarnishes, well, that's something that John considers, that, well, maybe my father, you know, where's the honor in fathering a bastard? He's questioning what he knows. And like it does for many of our readers, when we find out, uh, many of our readers, many of us, just us in general, when we find out that Ned probably never did cheat on Cat, well, that just fits better than the original notion of him one time cheating on her to do this thing. So it just kind of settles, it, it fits things better than uh, the original story we're told. Yeah, he's a liar, not a cheater. Right? <laughs> So the three times that Eamon refers to here, his temptations, his, his, the desperation and the things that, bad things that happened to his family, number one is almost certainly when he was offered the crown during the Great Council, the one that named his brother Egg King instead. Number two would be Summerhall. And number three would be Robert's Rebellion. Danny, of course, has so many threes in her arc. And maybe John will have his own set of three to get in on the act. There's a lot of parallels to John and Eamon. The notion of setting his claim aside. Okay, John does that in the show. Losing a lot of his family to war and murder. Hello, that clearly happens to John, though less than he thinks because, you know, he thinks that they're all dead, whereas, well, not all of them. He thinks that most of them are dead, where actually only a few of them are. Still, there's a lot of loss in there. But, of course, Eamon's family is John's family, too. So he loses all the same people Eamon lost. But, he, you know, of course, at the time, he didn't know they were family. But one day he'll hear about that they here's cut, another quote they cut down my brother's poor grandson and his son and even the little children yeah his brother's poor grandson is Ares, so i don't feel too bad about that one but Rhaegar, that story is still quite mysterious and that's john's father so his son that's john's father that, that Eamon's referring to and even the little children he says well john was one of those little children but he wasn't killed of course he's referring to baby Aegon and little rainies and those are john's half siblings so yeah that's that's tight in in a, in a sad way. Now, this line reads interesting if you consider what else we see pay for life later in this episode with Miri Mazdur and all that. And, a so uh, yeah. A mm. sword small payment for a life, Mormont concluded. Indeed. A sword is a small payment for a life, even a Valyrian steel blade. But that's also some meta if Valyrian steel requires human sacrifice. Mm, small, is, is a life small payment for a sword? Does it work both ways? I don't think so. But there's some meta there with the well, now that we know or think we know a lot of how Valyrian steel is made. That's uh, dark. So uh, some other notes here from Joe in this case. A first time reader could still be thinking that Ned will still be coming to the wall. Yeah, it, you know, before Ned's executed, it looks like that's going to happen. So there's some irony that uh, Ned is thinking John is alone at the wall. And they're kind of both thinking each other at the, at the same time that they'll maybe see each other soon. But nope, <laughs> that's too bad. Uh, interestingly, though, John does have a family member there with him in Eamon. He just doesn't know it, and neither does Eamon. <laughs> now, a few things about Gior Mormon here. It's interesting that he says they forgot their purpose about, you know, burning and doing their job and all that. He had talked to Tyrion about it earlier. He says straight up, we have to not forget our purpose. So I think maybe he's doing the same thing he does by not telling John about what's happening with his family, which John know John knows about this because Sam told him. Either way, uh, so we can read this as Gior being a little bit tricky, a little clever, a little bit. Um, he's playing with people's morale, you know, in a good way. He's trying to fire them up. He's trying to explain why this is important, but he's doing it in a way that's uh, 
Um, well, he's he's doing it in a way. <laughs> John is sort of being asked to give up his starkness a bit um, in general, like Arya does with Faceless Man and Sansa does with being a bastard and, and her identity and Bran as becoming not Bran. So it's a, a common theme for these Stark kids. The fandom has wondered quite a bit over John's burnt hand here. Over time, we've learned that Danny's lack of burning is not a Targaryen thing, but, well, it's, it's a Danny thing. It's something else. The history books have given us a lot about the Targaryens. We've been given strong evidence of their resistance to common illnesses, and there's evidence that their bond with dragons is partly literal and that they have some actual dragon blood in there or something to that effect of a magical nature. But we've never seen another Targaryen show immunity to fire. That's only Danny has seen that. Dragon fire, wildfire, molten gold. Otherwise, it's none of it. No one's ever been immune to it other than Danny. And in Dan, with Danny, it's just this one time. They can't handle hotter baths, or they can handle hotter baths. They, they can handle a little bit hotter temperature. That's about it. It's not, you know, it, it's a minor thing. It's notable, but not, you know, it's not over the top. So that's important to keep in mind. In this chapter, there's also the beginnings of Sam bending the rules a bit. Like I said a minute ago, he's he's telling John what uh, what's in the letters that he's reading to Maester Eamon because Maester Eamon needs you know can't read anymore. He has to have them read to him. So Sam gets all this insider information, and that's how he tells John about Rob's campaign and uh, Ned's capture and all that. John O'Donnell from Facebook points out that Mormont is more astute than he seems. He, quote: How is it that everyone seems to know everything around here? I think Mormont knows what's going on. I think he's uh, saying that idly to, you know, not to call out John directly, but he knows. He knows John and Sam are friends, and he knows that Sam reads the letters to Eamon. So it's really straightforward where John's getting his information. John also points out that when he's throwing pieces of meat to the ravens through the cage, uh, meaning John O'Donnell also points this out, that John's hand is burned and bloody. It's cool. It's fire and blood made real in this scene momentarily. He's got a bloody handful of raven or meat bits, and it's his burned hand. That's pretty cool. I did not catch that. Uh, Bernie L. from the chat, live chat, says crows can recognize faces and bring gifts if you feed them enough. Gifts are shiny things in glass. They're so smart. I think they've seen drug deals and understand currency. <laughs> yeah, that's true. They really are. They, uh, there's videos of, of them being really clever and solving puzzles online. It's really quite something. They're very clever. Brendan B., also from the live chat, says, Mormont's Raven can sell you some milk of the poppy? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. All right, next one. Daenerys 7, the one where Khal Drogo is wounded, a.k.a. the gang meets Miri Mazdur. Reminder of what I pointed out at the end of the last episode and at the beginning of this one. Four of the final 12 chapters of hers, with no one having more than two. It's kind of like her arc is filling the vacuum left by Ned's exit from the narrative. Eh. It's a brutal chapter, though. Our first real look at aftermath. But not the aftermath of war, the aftermath of slaughter. The Lazarine were hopelessly outmatched. It wasn't much of a fight. Though there was a major fight. It was Dothraki fighting each other in the Lazarine village. Can I say something real quick? Sure. You um, Obviously, we've, there's liberal show spoilers, because that's what this is. Um, I still can't help but want to say that, but uh, with the idea of D Danny filling the gap of Ned, and think about the role Ned played in this book about you, you know you think you know, and then he dies. Yeah, the role Danny would play over seven books. Oh wow, that, like, <laughs> good point. Builds her up, and then no, she's mm. she's killed. She's not the end all 
like heroic figure. She doesn't even make it to the end. George is so good at that. Like he sets up a trope to break a trope by doing another one, but that trope ends up being broken too. Or maybe even it's wrong to call that a trope, but either way, he's yeah. What a tricksy author. Yeah, anyways, (laughs) I just never really saw that similarity between Ned and Danny. How could I have until this new season of the show? Good point. And that's why we're doing this. The show just gave us so much new to talk about. Um, And I I think that's great. I think we're having, I'm having so much fun with this. Mm -hmm. It's just little little details, little tidbits, little realizations like what Ashea just had is a great part of that. Um, So like I said, this there was a major fight here in the Lazarine Village. It was the Dothraki fighting each other. And, uh, well, let's do the first line and a few after it, driving the point home about how nasty this all is. Sorry, Shay, you got to read this uh, nasty stuff. <laughs> when the battle was done, Danny rode her silver through the fields of the dead. Her handmaids and the men of her cause came after, smiling and jesting among themselves. Dothraki hooves had torn the earth and trampled the rye and lentils into the ground, while a rocks and arrows had sown a terrible new crop and watered it with blood. Dying horses lifted their heads and screamed at her as she rode past. Wounded men moaned and prayed. Jacaran moved among them, the mercy men with their heavy axes, taking a harvest of heads from the dead and dying alike. After them would scurry a, a flock of small girls, pulling arrows from the corpses to fill their baskets. Last of all, the dogs would come sniffing, lean and hungry, the feral pack that was never far behind the Kalisar. Savagery is really something. I mean, just, geez, it's so brutal. Later, we're going to talk about Theon's bloodlust again and in the, in the face of aftermath. But this level of destruction is on another level. It's not like what we see in Westeros. Quote, The sheep had been dead longest. There seemed to be thousands of them, black with flies, arrow shafts bristling from each carcass. Call Ogo's riders had done that. Danny knew no men of Drogo's Kalasar would be such a fool as to waste his arrows on sheep when there were shepherds yet to kill. Kill the sheep, man. That's crazy. Just keep them. They can travel with you and all the other herds they already keep. Like, it's just, it's so weird to do this. They're so, they're so violent. Beyond this pointless slaughter is a bit of evidence that Kalasars are, are very based on who leads them. We show, like Danny says, Drogo's Kalasar would not have done this. So Drogo's men are at least a bit more controlled as far as that goes. Or maybe that's just what Ogo wanted. He's like, yeah, kill the sheep. This is what we do. It's, it's, uh, I mean, the Mongolians did that in some places. He's always been called, oh, I, I can't make this joke, sheep effer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, but, you know, so maybe the Dothraki will be under more control under Danny because of what a powerful leader she's going to be. But we're not like to see them as disciplined as the Unsullied, certainly, or even Stannis' soldiers or the Golden Company. Wherever they go, there's going to be rape and devastation and killing for the sake of killing. And that's going to be part of the price that Danny justifies to taking her throne back. And, well, there is a high cost of war. And bells, though. Bells are huge here. The bells sound for Drogo's victory, and it's told to us straight away by Ser Jorah. He slew two calls this day, call Ogo first and then the son, Fogo, who became call when Ogo fell. His blood riders cut the bells from their hair, and now call Drogo's every step rings louder than before. And then again, when she gets to Drogo, he makes, meaning Drogo and George R. R. Martin, makes extra sure that they're heard. Quote, he turned his head, the bells in his braid ringing softly. Is Ogo you here and Fogo his Kalaka? 
who was called when I slew him. Through no fault of her own, Danny has a very naive view of war and mercy. You might say her view is Westerosi, even though she wasn't raised there. She has similar values. She hates slavery, which is banned in Westeros. She doesn't like war and conquest and the devastation that comes with it, but she sees it as necessary and that the justice of her cause outweighs these moral obligations. That's very similar to how Westerosi see it. They're like, yeah, well, they don't, they don't glorify, some, some of them glorify killing, but a lot of people, even Ned, are, are willing to, you know, put a lot of people's lives at risk or have a lot of people die to uphold duty and honor or justice uh, the way they see it. Mm-hmm. So when Danny says, quote, the dragon feeds on horse and sheep alike. He ain't lying, y'all. Horse and sheep means Dothraki and Lazarine in this context, but it also refers to knights and foot soldiers, lords and commoners. And literally speaking, fire and blood revealed how much dragons actually eat. The tally of devastation grows larger. Like, you get these big, big dragons eating huge amounts of animals every day. That's a big deal. When a single person grows enormously powerful, and has the ability to rain down devastation on vast numbers of people, their death can have a huge ripple effect. It might be what we see with Danny much, much later, but now we're about to see what happens when Khal Drogo's army falls apart. And it's interesting because a minor wound indirectly ends him. He was embarking on a quest that would have killed so many more. Many, many more villages would have had the fate of this Lazarine village until they had enough loot to get across the narrow sea. And then... Well, we heard what Drogo had in mind for the Seven Kings. We heard the promise he made to the mother of mountains, rape and pillage and devastation. His death prevented all that, or, well, or it delayed it, or a lot of it anyway, or maybe just some of it. The rest, well, this quest is still being taken up by Daenerys Stormborn, minus the slavery part, but still there's a lot of devastation and destruction. It's it's a better path of destruction than Khal Drogo's was uh, or would have been because at least some of her path of destruction is directed at slavers in the slave industry. But as the show revealed, she'll probably go beyond that. And if we may see something like Eternal Winter being defeated only to be faced with Eternal Summer instead, and someone decides it's necessary to take her out, just like someone may have decided to take out Khal Drogo and many other key leaders before they did, well, they enacted some great plan. So the idea of killing one person to affect great change, to save others, or win great power, or both, it's a recurring theme. Uh, whether you're Tywin arguing that killing one man at dinner is more noble than killing 10,000, of course, Tywin's lying, he killed 10,000 men at dinner, but still, the point is what I'm referring to, not the, the truth of what Tywin's saying. Whether you're murdering a call or a king, or a lord commander, Hey, John, right? Or whether a child sacrificed to R'hllor can be justified. Or killing the stallion who mounts the world before he can be born. Before he can mount the world. Uh, These are interesting moral quandaries. Do you kill someone before they do this great suffering? It's what Ned said to Robert. You don't kill a child for the harm they will do. You kill a child after they've done the harm or when they're an adult and when they're, you know, an actual threat. In this situation... It's difficult when you have prophecy and you have prophecy being real. Sometimes you might actually know that a child can grow up to be this big killer. But can you be right? Prophecy can be wrong. What if you're wrong? I mean, I think a lot of us agree that the stallion who mounts the world is Danny. It never was Rago. It was it's always been Danny. It's the mayor who mounts the world, not the stallion. But. Mary Mazdur doesn't know that. 
And is it even what she set out to do in the first place? This is a big challenge, a big conundrum. What was Mary's goal? What was, when did she come up with her plan if she even ever had one? There's a lot of ways to consider her arc and her role in the greater story, even though she dies so quickly. She's sort of a, a starting point for this type of, of philosophy, this moral conundrum of sacrifice. And is it right to kill if it prevents other killings? Is it right to sacrifice yourself to stop this? Is that even, and again, is that even what she was doing? So the effects of magic, the effects of prophecy, and the morality that's different in their world because, well, they do have magic. That does change the game. We can't look at it the way we look at our own world. Mary explains her skills convincingly. Not only does she say she has a religious duty to heal the wounded and save lives, because all life is sacred to the great shepherd, but she describes a variety of places she's gathered learning from. And it's a big, big moment when we realize that she mentions Marwin the Mage, the archmaster seen at the end of Feast for Crows, who says he's heading for Danny. So Danny might actually have that come full circle. Say, hey, you're the guy who taught <laughs> Mary Mazdor. I've got a problem with you. I don't think she'll like blame him for all that. It's kind of indir so indirect, but that will be an interesting conversation if it happens. Marwin has been to Ashai, just like Mary Mazdor says she's been. And if he gets to Danny, well, he could tell her some things about that. Things we're all interested to hear. Ashai was originally a bigger part of the story from George R. R. Martin's plan, but both the world building and the tale grew larger in the planning and early writing. So, you know, Danny's no longer going to go to Ashai, but she's going to hear about it. She's going to hear about it from Marwin, possibly. Melisandre's memories are another one. Melisandre's been to Ashai. She perhaps grew up there. So it still has secrets for us. It still has things to reveal. And I'm very curious to learn what they are. And, uh, well, we'll just have to wait. Speaking of Melisandre, though, she talks about making herself seem more powerful by doing things that look magical. We talk about how Euron does a similar thing. But Miri Mazdur, I think, is doing it as well here. Uh, she does chanting and burning of leaves and things like that that look kind of mundane, but she acts like they're magical. Um, but like Melisandre, she does have real magic, too. There's no doubt about that. So let's get deeper into her intent and her spells. It's, it's Like I said, it's quite a conundrum, but it's also really fun. All the elements are here at the end of this chapter. She pledges to heal Drogo, but he laughs at the idea of following her instructions to, for staving off infection. Obviously, this pretends far worse for his wound. <laughs> Miri is threatened with a horrible death by his blood riders if anything goes wrong, and they certainly try. And she gets the horrible death anyway. She's also given the job of delivering Rago here in this chapter as well. And she, well, she technically does that too. She later says her own life is worthless due to all else being lost. It's the lesson she inflicts on Danny in return or in revenge for, quote, saving her. She claims credit for Rago's death and the Call's vegetative state, but I'm not really sure this was the, her plan from the start. Maybe Call's vegetative state, but killing Rago, well, there's a lot of issues with that. So let's, uh, we'll, we'll, I'll be explaining that gradually as we go through Danny's chapters. One thing is that maybe she takes her vow to the Great Shepherd as earnestly as she says. She's seriously religious, quite possibly. And in that's, if that's the case, she can't kill anyone, certainly not an unborn child. And it doesn't look like she killed, tried to kill Drogo. I think she legitimately tried to heal him. Maybe it was for her own benefit. Maybe she was trying to survive. Maybe she's just saying, look, if I heal this guy, it gives me a better chance of, of living. You know, maybe I'll be better treated as a slave. Or maybe she's just, a, you know, wanted revenge. But did she want revenge right away? We're talking about what happened 
hours after her village was burned. We're talking about, you know, her being brought in front of Drogo and offering to heal him within hours of everything she knows being killed and slaughtered. It's a bit much for her to have come up with a plan right then and there within a couple of hours when she's just terrified and, and is suffering from so much loss. So, but, and so that's interesting too. So if she didn't kill Drogo, if she didn't go after him, if she didn't try to poison him, which I, again, really don't think she did, then why go after his child after he can't even tell? It seems like he's the one that caused all this destruction. If anyone's responsible for what happened to her and her loved ones, by far it's Drogo. And, and so the fact that she legitimately tries to heal him is telling. For one thing, it's hard to believe. Uh, so rather, there's a lot of these things kind of speaking against what Miri confesses to later. So we'll, we'll keep this in mind as we move forward because we've got more of Miri coming. So we're going to piece it all together as we move through it. All while keeping in mind what she means as a character in terms of future themes that we've discussed. Again, sacrifice, murder, the shadow of prophecy, the mysteries of blood magic, all that. So super deep topic, super fun. But we are not done with it yet. Joe Buckley points out that Eroa is included maybe to hold a mirror up to Daenerys and show that had Danny not been highborn, this would be her fate. Meaning a beautiful but lowborn girl uh, ends up as a sex slave. That's the fate of a lot of, you know, not highborn women and girls. And, you know, that's we even see that with Jorah when he goes to the when the, the, the pleasure house he meets Tyrion at, he's with a girl that looks like Danny, And that's no coincidence, but it also kind of proves this point. So a few other miscellaneous bits and questions. I never gave much thought to how the Lazarine as shepherds are derided by the, uh, the Dothraki. They say, ah, the lamb men lay with sheep. It is known. And, well, compare that to the early Valyrian shepherds. They were just sheep people, too. Danny's, you know, super, sheep super people. far back ancestors. Sheep people. <laughs> but no, it's the same. I mean, lamb men laying with sheep, as I was referencing earlier. Yep. <laughs> uh, I mean, they had the same idea of, of inter, interbreeding, crossbreeding, like the idea of, of Valyrians with dragons. Yeah, right. Like that that concept of, of a people breeding with their associated animal exists across cultures. That's true. Yeah. The people call the, the say the same thing about the Dothraki, like they sleep with their horses. And yeah. Them, it's, it's in real true, humanity. But... It's, yeah. It's a pretty common idea. Yeah. Joking about people's closeness to animals being sexual. Yeah. That's, yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Gross. We'll give the lamb man another, give the Lazarine another thousand years and maybe they'll be riding sphinxes. Something <laughs> <laughs> they grow into gradually. Sheep sphinxes. Sheep, yeah. Part sheep sphinxes. <laughs> So we have some uh, gender semantics uh, in the books regarding prophecy. Remember the, uh, the concept of prince, rather princess, that was promised, is uh, something that's toyed with. And it might be happening here. Well, it is happening here. Maybe it's kind of a setup for that concept. Quote. I need no man's help, he said in a voice hard and proud. He stood unaided, towering over them all. A fresh wave of blood ran down his breast from where Ogo's Iraq had cut off his nipple. Danny moved quickly to his side. I am no man. Uh-huh. She is no man. And he, he accepts this, this, this semantics as, uh, <laughs> as a, a good answer and does, in fact, take her shoulder. So right on. Now, here's a, here's a, a personal read that Danny uh, really missed on, <laughs> quote. She will do no harm, 
Danny felt she could trust this old, plain-faced woman with her flat nose. She had saved her from the hard hands of her rapers, after all. So judging people too much based on their appearance is a bit of a recurring theme for Danny, which is, you know, it's a fair thing to give to a young girl or a young boy. Uh, either way, judging people over much on their appearance is something that comes with maturity a lot of times, or rather not judging people too much on, them, on their uh, appearance. But uh, maybe this is what George is referring to here, um, because he, so much of what Danny says in that moment, in that sentence, is, is a physical description. Old, plain-faced woman with her flat nose, right? You know, That's, uh, yeah. if I had a nickel for every time my fortune cookie said, always trust a woman with a flat nose, you know? Huh. <laughs> You've actually had that cookie, huh? Yeah, sure. <laughs> of course. Cookies. never Don't trust cookies or, or prophecies. Okay, uh, moving on. We are now at Tyrion 8, the one with the Battle of the Green Fork, a.k.a. the gang meets Shay. It's also the one where we meet Podrick Payne and a few other lords from the West. The Battle of the Green Fork is the first of three battles that comprise this showdown of Stark versus Lannister. The other two battles were the Battle of the Whispering Wood, which is in Catelyn 10, and the Battle of the Camps, described in Tyrion 9. Quote, on a hill overlooking the King's Road, a long trestle table of rough-hewn pine had been erected beneath an elm tree and covered with a golden cloth. Tywin's ruthlessness is on display, so is his wealth and power, and that's what wins him the battle for the most part, because his strategy here isn't good. I, I mean, I say it isn't, I wrote it isn't great, but I think I would downplay that even more. It's just not that good. He explains his plan at the end of the chapter, first saying that he put the least disciplined men on the left, expecting them to break and run, and then, quote, Rob Stark is a green boy, more like to be brave than wise. I'd hope that if he saw our left collapse, he might plunge into the gap, eager for a rout. Once he was fully committed, Sir Kevin's pikes would wheel and take him in the flank, driving him into the river while I brought up the reserve. Pinning a large portion of the army is a solid goal. But Tywin is foolish to assume Rob will take his bait because even if Rob is commanding the army, which he isn't, there's no reason to assume he won't listen to the more experienced lords around him. Young men don't always listen to their elders. That's true. But assuming Rob is such a man makes little sense, especially Ned Stark's son, a man known to be the opposite of rash. And Tywin was counting on Rob to be rash or at least expecting or hoping for it. In fact, Rob did initially want to name Great John as the commander of this portion of the army, but Cat talked him into a different choice, Roose Bolton. Setting aside the political consequences of choosing Roose, he's definitely not a rash man, and the Great John probably is. So he chooses a high-risk, high-reward strategy in going for a night attack, and maybe it wasn't the best idea. I think it was fine. But agree or not, it wasn't rash. So I don't think much of Tywin's strategy here. But like a metaphor for wealth and privilege, he wins anyway. He kind of fails upwards. And Tyrion finds him sipping wine from a jeweled cup. Quote, The Stark boy proved more cautious than I expected for one of his years, Lord Tywin admitted. But a victory is a victory. He has more men, they're better equipped, etc. That's why I don't mind Roos's strategy. He had to gain an advantage to negate Tywin's advantage. A surprise attack is a reasonable way to do that. It just didn't work. And to pile on Tywin's decision-making even further, he didn't consider that his opponent would get creative rather than simply facing a superior force head-on. I mean, he should have predicted they would try something un un unconventional because he knew that they had uh, a disadvantage numerically. Now, 
some people will will wonder if Rus tanked his army on purpose, which is possible. He certainly put the Hornwoods and the other some of the other near neighbors of his in the most dangerous spots of the battle, so that he, whether win or lose, his neighbors in the north take losses, which you know gives him opportunities later. But that doesn't mean he's already trying to tank the Stark cause. I really don't think he was. I think he was in it to win it uh, at this point. But like Walder Frey, the way things went, he took his opportunity to stab his liege lord, his king, in the back when that opportunity presented itself. Right now, he's all about the Stark cause. There's no communication between him and Tywin. There's no, you know, why would he expect that Tywin would want to do a deal? It's way too early for that. Anyway. Back to the battle itself. The matter of putting Tyrion in the vanguard is interesting. Was he trying to get rid of him? Not only was he put in the most dangerous part of the battle, in a unit Tywin expected to lose, but Tyrion is pretty sure his father ordered arrows fired near enough to them that many of his own men were hit. Quote. His father's eyes were on him. Pale green flecked with gold. So cool they gave Tyrion a chill. Did that surprise you, father, he asked? Did it upset your plan? We were supposed to be butchered, were we not? Lord Tywin drained his cup, his face expressionless. I put the least disciplined men on the left. Yes, I anticipated that they would break. Tywin wanted to get rid of his son without much suspicion. And if Tywin's not his sire, well, that might just be extra motivation to get rid of him. A death in battle, well, no one could accuse Tywin of kinslaying in such a case. On the other hand, did he expect him to flee? He says, I expected that part of the army to run. Maybe he thought Tyrion would be one of those people running. And as a Lannister, as like a sort of commanding presence, as someone with men following him, like his clansmen and Bronn and those guys, maybe he expected them, Tyrion running, to encourage others to run. It might have been part of his calculus there. Or maybe it was reverse psychology, like he used with the Klansmen. He was like, oh, those Northerners, they're really, no one, even my men are scared to fight them, which he used to, you know, stoke their their pride and get them to fight with him. So Tywin has, as much as I denigrate his strategy, I don't think he's some kind of idiot. I just think he's overrated. Can I pose a question to you? Absolutely. Do you think, would Tywin think it was a stain upon his house if Tyrion were in the Night's Watch? I, I posit that he wouldn't want him in there because otherwise Tywin could have easily had him admitted through any of his actions. Mm. I think he could. He, if he wanted Tyrion in the Night's Watch, he could. Um, that's a good question. I think. I mean, he definitely was intending to send Tyrion to the Night's Watch after uh, yeah. the, the duel. Yeah, um, after he had good reason. Because yeah. that was my thought here is that like if Tyrion turned tail and ran in a battle, that is probably good enough reason to be like, go to the Night's Watch. Yeah, maybe. But obviously, like, doesn't he would have had a reason before the duel if he wanted to. Yeah. Oh, so anyways. True. It's a good point. I mean, just in general, kind of keying in on what Tywin was trying to do here by putting T- Tyrion in that vanguard and expecting it to run. It says a lot. Maybe he expect, like you said, maybe he expects Tyrion to run. That gives him an excuse to call him a coward and do all these other things. Or maybe he just expects him to die. So either way, you can see why Tywin had a lot of things that could go right for him here. <laughs> um, but it's. An interesting question for Gregor as well. Not the running away part. I really don't think he expected Gregor to run. But it's interesting that he puts Gregor in a unit he expects to lose and run. Especially since he probably doesn't expect Gregor to run. That that kind of implies he doesn't expect Gregor to survive this. So 
And that's a really interesting thing, too. The killing of Rhaegar's son is still on him, right? That's still something that Gregor knows about, which Tywin maybe doesn't really want other people to, to be talking about too much. The recent ravaging of the Riverlands is also something Tywin ordered Gregor to do, but he might not want to take responsibility for that. He might want to remove the witness, so to speak. It may not be enough to want him dead. Tywin later comments on how useful Gregor is. But, uh, you know, because he doesn't want to give him up to the Dornish. But on the other hand, if Gregor dies in battle, it kind of ties a lot of loose ends up. Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those situations where you're not going to make the decision like, yeah, let's execute this guy. But if he's doing, you know, good work for you and he dies while doing something no one else could do, that's fine. So let's put him in all these risky, risky situations. And if he succeeds, all the better. Yeah. You know what I mean? So either way, Tywin wins. Whether Gregor lives or dies, if he's out there fighting, he wins, I guess. Yeah, that's a good point. And this is the part of Tywin's strategy that I think is is, is kind of gross, but fair to say is clever, uh, or at least um, well-considered from his perspective. You know, that's removing any ethical consideration, obviously. Interesting, too, here is uh, Tyrion's similarity to his father. It's really apparent here. Not the ruthlessness. That comes later and, you know, in some parts before. But the pride part, again, with with Walder's pride and Tywin's pride, Tyrion's pride is not to be forgotten. And, of course, Tyrion got that from his father. A a lion's pride. Yeah, the lion's pride. (laughs) It fits so well. So note that when Tyrion is told he's going to be in the van, he gets a sinking feeling. But he's not like, no, I'm not going to do that. He, He recognizes maybe his father's trying to get him killed, but he's not, like, angry. It's when he hears Gregor is leading it, not him. That's what gets him to storm off. So interesting, right? He, it's, not that, it's not that he's upset that his father's trying to kill him. It's that his father didn't put him in command, which that's kind of poignant. And he did get in several fights on the way to the Erie. He hasn't been in a battle, though. He hasn't actually commanded men in a real battle. So it, it does make sense for Tywin to not give Tyrion the command, even though... Uh, it's typical for these situations for there to be a lot of nepotism and, and favoring the nobility, even when they don't have the, the skills. I think that Tyrion parallels John and Danny. I mean, John and uh, Sansa in particular, just being whiny brats. That's a good point. And they're just well, the three of them are particularly whiny. I yeah. think in this book, they are. You're right. They have a lot of times they have legitimate complaints, but they also make very you know childish complaints. Yeah, like, I it's mean, a like the idea of yeah. Tyrion thinking he should be leading anyone above above like Sir Gregor Clegane. Yeah, right. It's just like ludicrous. He's not a knight. He's you know he's yeah. just Tywin's son. Like yeah, it's just completely ludicrous. Right. So it's kind of neat. Like it's easy to miss that because. It, heck, your father's trying to get you killed. Like that's way more important. But like think about it. it's like. Wait a minute. Why is he upset? He's upset about not being in command. <laughs> like, <laughs> so anyway, and now here's the line uh, that comes up as he's walking around by himself after leaving dinner, after storming off. This, I think, maybe foreshadows where he'll be much later. He's turning on his family. Quote. No one looked at him. No one spoke to him. No one paid him any mind. He was surrounded by men sworn to House Lannister, a vast host, 20,000 strong. And yet, he was alone. Oh. So sad. <laughs> no, I just picture Tyrion. Sad boy Tyrion sitting there. I'm sorry. Yeah, he doesn't belong. It's, it's how he feels. His father insults him by, Tyrion, by saying, Tyrion, you consult. I don't tell my plans to people who consult with sellswords and savages. 
but he is more comfortable with the cell swords and savages uh you know you know braun and the clansmen and, and shay now who like the battle of the green fork is very different from the tv version in the show Tyrion's knocked unconscious by a hammer and misses the battle now i can't complain about that cut battles are just so expensive and uh you gotta you gotta give them a pass for cutting some of these battles they're just so expensive but I, I do prefer, and I prefer keeping characters as similar as possible from book to show. But making Shay older and wiser, I think, was a solid decision. Uh, George R. R. Martin himself is a fan of Sybil Kakeli's version of Shay, and adding he adds her to the list of characters like Bronn and Osha, who he had a he indicates the show did a good job with the changes of them or, or making them more important. He likes the at least likes the way the actress portrayed them, if not the changes the show made. And now um, here's another line that stuck out it's a small single line that uh it kind of has a lot of meta to it maybe it foreshadows the long night maybe not but i think it fits whether or not george may, uh, intended it that way quote dusk had settled turning all the banners black ah, that's cool right it's a you could put that sentence you know in the winds of winter when humanity is facing the armies of the dead right uh, humanity is one house when it's living versus the dead everyone's in the night's watch if the others get through the wall in a sense i mean they don't have to give up their families and all but they all need to be fighting for that same cause. So if night is constant, the long night, if it's really uh, you know, darkness 24-7 or near darkness 24-7, then the banners will be black all the time, too. It will be constant dusk or constant night. Pretty cool. So we got big intros, like I said, for Pod and Shay. I don't have a ton to say about Shay. I think she's a super interesting character, and the way she sets up Tyrion's arc in a lot of ways similarities to Tysha and all that's really important but we haven't gotten to that yet we don't know unlike a lot of other things the show revealed we don't know what George has in, in mind for Tyrion and Tysha if anything like will he find her again or will he will his thoughts of her drive him into darker places we don't know so it's it's hard to predict but we definitely know that comments like my giant of Lannister which is heard in this in this chapter will come back to haunt him in Storm of Swords during the trial uh, Shay being frightened is a, is a constant. That's fair. I mean, why wouldn't she? There's all sorts of frightening things going on all around. Uh, Tysha and Tysha and Shay have some things in common besides being uh, people that Tyrion had a relationship with, age wise and um, you know agency wise. And uh, the song of Tysha links them also, um, as Joe says. On reread, these links ba- this links back to Tysha, and uh, it's it's just so powerful. The show and the fact that Tyrion hadn't mentioned Tysha throughout most of the book are a trick, right? Because, again, like I said, we can't, it's hard to predict where this is going. But Tyrion has so much of his arc, you know, rotating around his view of himself and relationships with other people and his visiting of sex workers, which, uh, you know, the show inflates that a bit, but it's still something he does a lot in the books. And uh, Tysha's, like Joe says very well here, Tysha is a ghost in, in every single one of his relationships. Every person he's with, he thinks about Tysha. And um, I wonder, moving forward, how much he's going to think about Shay. He definitely thinks about Shay. He still thinks about Tysha more than Shay, but he's going to have to have face his guilt over that at some point, I think, and, and think about what he's done. Uh, Joe points out that this is not a good book for uh, Gregor's horses. <laughs> yeah, Gregor loses a few horses in this book. One uh, that he does uh, you know, at the tournament, kills it himself, and his horse dies under him in this one. Uh, Joe also points out a nice, uh, bit here. Yes, we, we, we note that Brendan Tully is amazing, but 
What we didn't know is that Adam Marbrand is also a really competent commander, and Brendan just outfoxes him. Adam's the one who comes and delivers the news that Rob's army had split. That should have been Adam's job to discover that. Uh, and he is, like I said, highly competent, but we don't learn that till later. So it's important to note that now that the Tully, that Brendan Tully's um, work here was spectacular. He, he fooled uh, a very competent man uh, very thoroughly. Here's a uh, minor curiosity I have as we move into our QA slash miscellaneous portion of this chapter. Quote, Tyrion owned a fine suit of heavy plate, expertly crafted to fit his misshapen body. Alas, it was safe at Casterly Rock, and he was not. <laughs> I wonder if he'll ever get back to that armor. And, um, or if he'll ever feel safe at Casterly Rock. <laughs> I wonder about that. Maybe at the very, very end of the story. Still think there's a good chance he ends up Lord of Castle Rock at the end. And, um, well, if he does, he'll be reunited with his armor. <laughs> Speaking of armor, Tywin's very interesting. Now, Tywin uh, has had long since tried to tie his family to the Targaryens. He wanted to, you know, marry Cersei to Rhaegar, as we know. And his armor has kind of a Aegon and his sisters vibe to it. I never caught this before. This is new for me. Quote. The great cloak was held in place by a matched pair of miniature lionesses crouching on his shoulders as if poised to spring. Their mate, a male with a magnificent mane, reclined atop Lord Tywin's great helm, one paw raking the air as he roared. All three lions were wrought in gold with ruby eyes. That's interesting, right? <laughs> the magnificent mane that he himself lacks. <laughs> he does have those magnificent side whiskers, though. <laughs> Mutton chops. <laughs> Interesting, too, that the core of Tyrion's supporting cast moving forward for several books is gathered right here. You got Podrick, Shay, Bronn, Shaga, Timot, and Chella, even. So, really, these are all the people he's bringing with him to King's Landing, and they're going to be part of his arc until he flees to Essos with, uh, in a box. And even then, he's going to think about some of them and refer to some of them and wonder what they're doing. And maybe one day they'll be reunited. I look forward to the possibility of, of Tyrion and Bronn again, or Tyrion and... Podrick again, maybe. Uh, Shaga and Timot and Chella are all alive now, as far as we know. So there's a chance that he could be reunited with any or all of them as well. That'd be cool. Our Facebook group had a lot of talk about Shay. There's some really good discussions about agency and where uh, the importance with her character. It's, it's an, partly an important discussion because, again, the show is so different from the books with her character. So she's, in a lot of ways, a very different character, which which you know, means that the discussions about her are very different and then it's important to parse those differences. And I'm wondering again, how much he's going to think about her in the future. I think that's going to be a thing. So again, shout out to our Facebook group. Lots of good discussions happening there as well as on Flick, which is um, the links are generally available in the description of the podcast or YouTube video, depending on what you're watching on. Let's move on to Catlin 10. The gang fights in the Whispering Woods, a.k.a. the one where they captured Jamie. It's also the one where Kat remembers some important moments from her childhood and prays for her own child. Quote. The woods were full of whispers. That's one of the coolest openings to the chapter. It's the Battle of the Whispering Woods, and the whispering is a big part of it. You can hear men kind of talking to themselves, trying to fire themselves up morale-wise, trying to keep from getting scared. And uh, it's called The Whispering Woods. It's the Battle of the Whispering Woods. It's a really cool way to start the chapter. A, just a, different, a different perspective on battle. Um, each of these three battles that we get are done a different way. 
Uh, this, in this case, we're close enough to harm, uh, a cat is close enough to harm that she could be, you know, hurt in this battle and close enough to see and hear it. But she's not worried about herself. She's worried about Rob. Uh, whereas, contrast to Tyrion, who was actually in the battle, and the third battle, which is the Battle of the Camps, that's going to be one we hear about after the fact from a messenger telling Tyrion and Tywin and Kivan and all that. So we get three different perspectives in the battle, near the battle, and told about the battle. And they're all, of course, almost in a row. Not in a row, but close to in a row. Uh, between Catelyn and Tyrion's chapters, if you just look at those, then they are in a row. So now when Rob leaves her uh, before the battle, he says it's because father told him to let the men see you before a battle, to give them courage. Now, we've been talking about Rob and how he emulates and learns from his father throughout this episode, and, we, and it's going to last until the end of Cat's arc, basically. And there's a lot of it in this chapter and set up for more of it later. For example, when thinking of the dead after the battle, quote, Rob looked away into the woods with the same brooding look that Ned often got. So we see him act like his father and behave even sort of subconsciously like his father with the his Stark mannerisms. Brood. <laughs> the Stark brood, right? John got that too, right? Yeah. <laughs> As Rob becomes more and more like Ned, Theon's going in the opposite direction. Rob is the Tully words here. Family, duty, honor. He's not about glory. He's not eager for blood. He takes it seriously. He takes it like a solemn duty. But Theon is like, yeah, it's like the farm. It's like the field of fire. <laughs> you know, it was great. It was glorious. He's just completely unable to read the room. Rob is, is reflecting on grief. He's thinking about people that were guarding him that died in the battle, like heirs to important houses. He's dismayed. He's, he's, he's not thinking about this great victory he's thinking about the men they lost and theon is doing the opposite he's talking about how great it was like yeah we won we kicked their butts we like hardly any of our men died but some of them did theon and well and those were important people and the same thing happens after they learn of ned's death in cat's final chapter next week while rob is in the godswood with the other northern lords praying theon's going to be bragging about this very same battle to the river run garrison so again he just He's on a, of a different mind. Theon also, in a perhaps bit of foreshadowing to his lack of forethought and his, you know, lust for blood, he thinks Rob should cut Jamie's head off. That's just stupid as well as bloodthirsty. It's worthy of Joffrey. That's, you know, and, and it, like I said, this is foreshadowing. It's not recognizing the value of hostages. Theon Later, we'll be told by Asha that you'll be a hero if you just burn Winterfell and bring Brandon Rickon back to Pike. But that goofball is like, you're trying to take my castle away. No, she's giving you blatantly good common sense advice, but he's kind of stupid. So, you know, bloodthirsty and stupid. That's a big part of Theon is who Theon is until the dread for it. He stops being as stupid when he has horrible things happen to him. Instead of stupid, he becomes traumatized and well. That's a long way off. We'll get there. So just as Roose Bolton's army is outnumbered and attacks at night, so is Rob's. And so does Rob's. So you wonder if, some people wonder if, if Roos tanked his own army there, but I think is a good chance that this was all discussed prior, that Rob and Blackfish and Roos and all these guys decided that both armies would attack at night. Galbert Glover points out that Rob's army is at a three to one disadvantage, but Rob's army is all cavalry better commanded the terrain is to their advantage in that jamie has to split his army in three to besiege river run properly in other words having the advantage of three times the men isn't an advantage if they aren't all fighting together 
And so that's what their aim is, to pick those armies off one by one rather than letting them unite, which would pose too much of a problem. Blackfish basically does what Tywin tries to do, build his strategy in large part around the commander's tendencies and personality. But Tywin, of course, doesn't actually know Rob and makes a lot of bad assumptions about how he'll behave. Jamie Lannister, however, is a well-known commodity and uh, his, his tendencies are a lot more established. But even that, with that known, Brendan checks to be sure. He plays him and does a few testing moves, sees how Jamie will respond to raids, and then makes his move. Plays him like a master. And Rob, uh, a young master in his own right, trusts his great uncle smartly because the Blackfish is, is, is the bomb. And uh, Rob recognizes this. And he takes that information that Blackfish gives him and makes really smooth decisions, really smooth, confident decisions that pay off. Blackfish is really damn good. He's going to do serious damage. I've said it before. I know I'm, I'm beating a dead horse here. But the battles of the Whispering Wood and the battles of the camps are the time when we really, really see that proof. We really see Blackfish at his best. And it's, it's not really foreshadowing for later. It's just set up for later that great commanding is still in his future because he's still alive. And, uh, well, we'll just have to see exactly what he does. Speaking of really damn good, Jamie was too. Not in the same way Blackfish is, though. I mean pure fighting prowess and getting men to follow him. He's amazing at that. We never actually see it. We just hear about it from Rob afterwards. It's interesting that we, we never actually see Jamie fight other than in the tournament, which isn't, so we don't actually see him fight with a sword other than fighting Brienne. But he, she's elite as well, and Jamie wasn't at full strength. So what I'm saying is we really never get to see Jamie just at his best, cutting through uh, people not up to his uh, you know, abilities. We only ever see him fight someone that's as good as him. The only notable losses on the Stark side are the three killed by him. Jamie overmatching everyone in his path. That would have been kind of cool to see, but it's just something that we have to think about and kind of imagine. Same with Grey Wind. Theon, uh, in all his gloating, describes just how uh, great uh, Greywind was, how important he was, how deadly he was, how disruptive to the enemy horses, which by itself is huge cavalry charges. You know, you can't get momentum if your horses are scared of a, of a, uh, of a wolf or scared of anything really, or elephants or another thing that'll matter in that, but that's getting ahead of ourselves. So we didn't get to see just how nasty that was, but we know it's a big deal. We know that the dire wolves against horses that aren't comfortable with dire wolves and aren't used to it. They're a huge weapon. It's not about just the fact that they're, you know, their teeth and their size. It's about the scare they put into an entire unit of cavalry, potentially. Uh, while we're lamenting not getting to see Grey win in action or Rob uh, really in action or even Jamie, well, we'll have others to be awed by, like Brienne, who fought Jamie. Brienne still got all her faculties, basically. And other others, like the others <laughs> and Ghost and Nymeria and Shaggy Dog. We could see them, we could still see Direwolves in action, just not Grey Wind. In Cat's last chapter, we, we pointed out the swollen red sun setting in the west. Now we have this contrast. Quote. As a red, as a red dawn broke in the east, gray wind began to howl again. Yeah, the red dawn. It's like the young wolf is rising. But, well, and, and plot lines that feature large in his arc are rising along with him. Yeah, because, you know sun the sun rises and sets for for poor for poor the young wolf for poor rob (laughs) 
one of the setups here for his arcs uh, is Lord Karstark's revenge. Rob points out that Lord Eddard never condoned murdering prisoners right here in this chapter, which is precisely what the Karstarks do. So when we're talking about all the ways that Rob is his father's son, well, this is one subplot, the Karstark subplot, where he is absolutely positively like his father, just like he is in so many other ways. The Lannister boys killed uh, are the ones captured in this battle as well, uh, along with Sir Cleos Frey, who Jamie and Brienne ride with after Catelyn sets them free. A lot of little uh, starts to little tidbits from future arcs that, that matter here. Uh, of course, it's confusing to have Cleos Frey on the Lannister side when most of the Freys are fighting for the Starks. But that's what happens when you've got a gigantic family like the Freys. Okay, a couple of uh, questions here. Two more examples of Captain Obvious doing his thing. Remember Hal Mullen, who says obvious things? Well, here it's it's pointed out again that he does that. Quote. They're coming, my lady, Hal Mullen whispered. He was always a man for stating the obvious. Gods be with us. And again, Captain Obvious rears his funny head when Jamie is presented in chains. The Kingslayer, Hal announced unnecessarily <laughs> unnecessarily i love that awesome. I, you know it's funny because the unnecessarily is itself unnecessary yeah <laughs> so george is definitely throwing some comedy in there i love captain obvious and i'm glad he's still alive as far as we know i, I hope he uh is part of the comic relief in the winds of winter which is sure to be brutal and full mm-hmm. of death if captain obvious is there to lighten things up along with people like dollars ed i'll be happy yeah <laughs> So Lord Jason Malister, one of the series' hidden badasses, captures Rob's future father-in-law, Gawain Westerling. Though Gawain never actually consents to Rob's marriage with his daughter, uh, currently Gawain is back in the crag, most likely. And we wonder uh, how he's going to react to his wife doing all those things uh, that she did while he was gone. Um, Yeah, Jamie wasn't so happy with uh, Sybil Spicer, so I don't know what Gawain's going to think, but... I'm curious uh, what happens with him in the long run. Minor character who has some things to do or at least to answer for. Also from our Facebook group, John Heggie mentioned some symmetry in the manner of captives taken and how both sides react to it. He points out that both sides are ecstatic about their victory until someone shuts them down and points out that they're not being realistic, that they're getting ahead of themselves. Here is Catelyn doing that to Theon, quote. And Lord Tywin, Catelyn interrupted. Have you perchance taken Lord Tywin, Theon? No, Greyjoy answered, brought up short. Yes, shut up, Theon. (laughs) And here's another one on the other side. And the boy, Lord Tywin asked. Sir Adam hesitated. The Stark boy was not with them, my lord. That's right. Too many assumptions, Tywin. (laughs) So, that's that. Let's move on. Daenerys 8. The one where Miri uses blood magic, a.k.a. the gang fights Drogo's blood riders. An ominous way to begin the chapter, quote. The flies circled Khal Drogo slowly, their wings buzzing, a low thrum at the edge of hearing that filled Danny with dread. Yeah. Drogo is doing the exact opposite of what Miri said to do to get healthy. So that's not working out so well for him. He's dying, but the bells are still ringing in his hair. And, of course... That's in part because he can't sit still. He's just swaying back and forth. It's making the bells ring more, which is, uh, there's probably some sort of symbolism in there. <laughs> Not much time has passed since his, since his last chapter. 
It says that he tore the poultice off six days ago and had it replaced with a mud plaster thingy instead. Now, Mary said he needed to wear it for 10 days. So if he pulled it off six days before the 10 days had happened, well, it's only been about a week, give or take a few days. So not long, which makes sense because, you know, infections and stuff, it wouldn't, it wouldn't take a long time. And once that gets going, it's going to move quickly. So it's kind of funny, though. Uh, well, ironic, maybe not funny. Kyle Drogo, afraid of nothing, claiming to have great pain management skills, can't deal with the burning and itching of this poultice, has it removed, but is too proud to admit that his wound is worsening. Isn't that, uh, well, that's toxic masculinity for you. Heavy emphasis on the toxic. That's not masculine to not admit you're dying. (laughs) Yeah. So also interesting to compare these similar elements. Who else had a minor wound that festered and became dangerous only to be saved by blood magic. Victarion, yeah, he's on this trip too. Uh, he had his wound treated uh, earlier than Drogo. Um, now, Drogo with a firearm, though. Hmm, with an arm like Victarion. Now, that would have been pretty badass, but ah, alas, no firearm Drogo for us. Danny doesn't allow herself to despair. That's really interesting. Later, she doesn't allow herself to feel fear. I think this is kind of ominous in a way that I didn't notice before. It's not good to not feel fear. That's pointed out a few times in the series that people who don't feel fear are kind of inhuman. You got, you know, bravery in the face of fear is courage. It's not bravery when you just don't feel fear. That's like a form of sociopathy. <laughs> You're spo- everyone's supposed to feel a little bit of fear. You're not supposed to be afraid of nothing. And for most of the time, I feel like Danny is being brave. But there are times... Um, maybe not all here, but just throughout her arc where I think that there's some spots where she just doesn't have fear, which you can maybe take a different look at. Maybe take, maybe that needs to be reexamined. Uh, maybe it's just her conquering her fear, but sometimes maybe it's just that she doesn't have it, which is, uh, interesting. And isn't that a statement about Danny that might wind up describing her arc really well? What I mean is seeming strong, but really it being something else, her strength gone awry or being too strong. Hmm. Jorah points out that Drogo's blood riders are essentially bound to die with Drogo. Um, It's cultural, ritualistic. They have to die in an attempt to avenge their call if it was killed by some enemy or if that's already done or if it isn't possible, well, then they're supposed to die by some kind of ritual suicide that isn't exactly made clear. Quote, the Dothraki say a man and his blood riders share one life, and Kotho sees it ending. A dead man is beyond fear. Now that's contrasted to a deserter from the Night's Watch. They're beyond fear in that they know anyone who catches them will, you know, can kill them or turn them in to be killed. Uh, their life is forfeit. And this is the same similar situation here. They're basically they're dead men walking by the demands of their culture, just like a deserter would be. But uh with different, um, you know, attitudes. Jorah should know all this very well. This is an interesting, Jorah's role in all this is really interesting. Uh, He's condemned in Westeros himself, after all. He's a man that probably didn't see himself getting a second chance, but is getting one. And, well, he knows, he has something in common with Mary Mazdur, which is that she has lost everything. And Jorah knows all about that. Now, in Jorah's case, it's his own doing. But still, he lost everything. And he's finding a a second lease on life by meeting Daenerys and and having, you know, some ties to Westeros and having a shot to get back there. 
Of course, there's nothing like that on the table for Kotho, Hago, and Kahalo, though. Their, their life is tied to Drogo, and there is no second chance for them unless he recovers, which, yeah, that's not going to happen. They certainly get their chance to go out fighting, though. They, their fight against Jorah and Danny's four costs against the backdrop of Miri's blood magic is pretty epic. Ago's clutch arrow to save Danny from Kahalo is pretty, uh, pretty well, it's clutch. And Danny shows no fear in that moment either. When Kahalo has her, his blade to her neck, she is not thinking about herself. She's thinking about her child, which I think that's, you know, that is very human. Mothers very often put their children first, very often. And uh, so I don't think this is necessarily an example of her just lack of fearlessness, but it might be, it might be both. It might be both those things happening. But you also have the sound of battle and death and her singing. It's just really, it's a really epic, scary, uh, tragic chapter. The shadows coming to dance, my Lord, to stay, my Lord, right? It's what Miri's got going on in that tent. My, my, I like to joke about that Miri's just like, really good with those shadow puppets. She makes them look really huge. She's just got like a little miniature wolf and she's just, it's it's fake, right? No, it's not. I don't think so. Even Patchface finds this stuff creepy. The fandom has long wondered if this is part or all of what he's referring to. Quote. Inside the tent, the shapes were dancing, circling the vizier in the bloody bath, dark against the dark, the sand silk, and some did not look human. She glimpsed the shadow of a great wolf and another like a man wreathed in flames. Oh, that is so creepy and so cool. And here we have to look again at her similarity and ties to Melisandre and Marwyn. They've all learned some of the same magic from the same place, Ashai. So, well, are we going to see more of this? Are we going to get explanations from this? Will Marwyn tell Danny about some of this? Will Melisandre tell Stannis or somebody else about this? Maybe, maybe not, but I think we'll get more spells and more shadows. And when we do, we're going to want to look back at this and compare what we've seen. So back to Miri Mazdur's intent. A little bit more of the puzzle shapes out here. Uh, again, I think her attempt to save Drogo's life was serious. Uh, in other words, she did intend her magic spell to work, though not restoring him to his former status. I think that she did know that he would not be as he was. Another thing is certain that Mary wanted Danny to leave the tent, but why is not certain. It might be that entering the tent was crucial to Rago's death. Jorah thinks so. Danny thinks so, at least for a while, if not for throughout. It may be that Rago would have died anyway because he was so malformed. If that's the way he was coming out, then he wouldn't have lived. But he may have been malformed because of the magic. And if so, well, how much of that is Miss Miri's responsibility? How much did she intend for that to happen? Or how much of it was incidental? As in, was Rago the target of her magic? Or was it because Jorah carried Danny into the tent that she really didn't want Danny to be in? So like if, if the tent is going to, being in the tent is going to kill Rago and her intent is to kill Rago, then why would she want him to leave or want, want her to leave? So... Well, from a meta perspective, part of the reason George R. R. Martin had Danny leave the tent was because it would be hard to write this from a witness perspective. Seeing the magic firsthand, well, that's tough. In a lot of ways, it's spookier when more is left up to the imagination. You know, when you see it from a distance and are left to wonder, you have the singing and the dancing and the blood, and you're like, what is going on in there? If you see it firsthand, well, some of the mystery is removed. But 
that's all still part of this thinking. You know, even, even though George would say, well, maybe I won't put her in the tent. You can say, well, that's why he didn't do that. Well, he still has to work around that. He still has to thread these magical elements, even though he may be using writing perspective in how to arrange the scene. Now, given our calculations at the beginning of this part, Miri has had a few days to stew over her new lot in life and what she's lost. But she's been sent back with the other slave. She isn't around Drogo. She doesn't necessarily know he's getting worse. She doesn't, Danny's keeping this quiet. She doesn't know that she'll be called to deliver the baby soon. She knows that she'll be called eventually for that, given what she's told, but she doesn't know exactly when. So the timing is a little uh, something to consider as well. Now, during the fighting, when the blood riders are all going at each other, when it's that, I guess you could say it's a three on five, Drogo's three blood riders versus Danny's four Koss and, Dr- and Jorah. Well, Jorah says Rago is going to be killed by the Dothraki upon Drogo's death as well. So if the, if, if, Danny's blood, or if Drogo's blood riders had won that battle, they would have forced Danny to go to the Dosh Kaleen and probably uh, killed Rago. Maybe, maybe his blood riders wouldn't, but someone would have killed Rago. The point is, Rago's doomed almost no matter what. Now, right now again, uh, Danny thinks that the price is too high when she's uh, out there getting stone thrown at her and she's lamenting this choice. And she's thinking that the deaths of the blood riders are somehow part of the spell. I'm confused as to how that could be, but she thinks it, and Miri seems to allow Danny to believe that. It might even be true. It makes sense in a, in a way. Death has to pay for life. Maybe the death just has to be nearby. Are they part of the spell? Does, that, does it work that way? It's just really confusing. Magic is, uh, is very unclear here, and it's meant to be. And But that's part of the point here, too. It's blood magic, and maybe it was interrupted by Jorah walking into the tent. Maybe it was fueled by those extra deaths. It's, it's just not a precise thing in the first place, though. That's the bottom line. <clears throat> so when we're trying to piece all this together, that's an overarching fact of magic in this world, that it's not an exact science. It's been said in a many different ways that sorcery is like a sword without a hilt. It has unintended consequences. You can't predict everything that's going to happen. So when we sit here and, con- and consider Mary Mazdur's role and her intent we have to keep in mind that what she intended from the magic may not have been what happened because it, it almost, it very frequently doesn't go the way people expect it to. And getting back to that, uh, from her perspective, why would she take the idea seriously that Rago was the stallion who mounts the world? What are, are the Lazarine big on Dothraki prophecies? How does she know about this? Does, I mean, it, she could have learned about it in a lot of different ways, but does she believe it? She wasn't there for the ceremony. Why would she just be like, oh, well, they believe this kid's going to be the, the stallion who mounts the world, so I do too? Eh, I'm not sure about that. I, I think she may have. Uh, we just can't take it for granted that she believed that. So we'll finish our puzzling over this when Mary makes her confession, whether it's real or not, in Danny 9. And of course, in her final chapter, Danny 10, doesn't go so well for Mary regardless. That's part of it as well, knowing that Mary knows what may or may not happen to her. All right, so... More on that later. The Miri conundrum will continue. A couple of quick questions. Uh, A man with a curved blade fighting an older knight in armor without a helmet. That's what Jorah does with uh, Kotho there. But that's also what Barristan does versus Kraz in The Dance of Dragons. Kotho seems a far better fighter than Kraz. Barristan beat Kraz without a great struggle at all. Now, Jorah gets a little lucky against Kotho. But they both get lucky in the same way. 
Kotho's Arax sticks in Jorah's hip, and that gives him a moment to, well, finish Kotho off. Whereas that's also what happens with Barristan. Kraz goes for an overhand shot, overhand sweep, and his blade gets caught in some over in some wall hangings, and that's it for him. Barristan seizes that opportunity. So some parallels there, I suppose. And I did not notice that till this reread. So score another one for Valar Reredus. If you've read the book Dying of the Light, well, the Blood Rider Code is uh, may have been something that George was uh, working on. Kind of, he had a proto version of it in the uh, the concept of Tains, T E Y N, which is a, a a pairing of of uh, from a warrior culture in Dying of the Light, and they they treat each other, you know, kind of like they're one life. It's very similar. So uh, if any of you have read Dying the Light or plan on it, well, be on the lookout for that. It's very cool. And there's a lot of other parallels to A Song of Ice and Fire in uh, Dying of the Light, including uh, dog hunts, skin changing, things like that, houses. It's very cool. Again, I've recommended it before, and I'll do it again. You can get it at our website, historyofwesteros.com. And our last chapter today, Arya 5. The one where they execute Ned, a.k.a. the one where we learned how different this series really was. This chapter also starts a near uninterrupted procession of final chapters. Like I said at the beginning, here's the actual detail. This is Arya's last chapter. Next week, we'll start with Bran's last chapter, then Sansa's last chapter. Danny's second to last chapter will follow that. Then Tyrion's last chapter, then Jon's last chapter, then Kat's last chapter. And then finally, the last chapter of A Game of Thrones is the final Danny chapter. Though Arya is herself not a commoner, of course, she is living as one for the time being, and that gives us insight and access to a different part of Westerosi culture, and it's very interesting. Quote, The scent of hot bread drifting from the shops along the street of flour was sweeter than any perfume Arya had ever smelled. So she's already snapping the next pigeons to eat, in part because she's quite a natural at adapting to her circumstances, Uh, She's also the opposite of squeamish, and it's really hard to scare her. And also, she's starving. I mean, yeah, if you're desperate, you got to do what you got to do. Even during the climactic moment of this chapter, she reacts with anger more than sadness. To be clear, she is distraught. She is very sad. And the more time passes, the worse it gets. But her first reaction is fury. And that's important. It's, uh, you know, part of understanding who she is. She keeps her wits about her when almost walking into the clutches of the guards waiting for her at the ship her father hired, which is also, you know, part of her growth. We're seeing her adapt, seeing her learn, seeing her take Sirio's lessons to heart. Before, when she was reacting and running away from the castle, Joe Buckley pointed out how she was just falling back on the most basic lessons, sticking with the pointy end. She was, but over time, as she gets farther into her escape, she cools down, starts to remember more and more of her lessons, and, and gets a hold of herself more. And you see that carrying on uh, the farther we get into her arc. I love that the name of the ship that she's almost gets on is Wind Witch, because it just reminds me of the Roynish water mages in Nymeria, which is, uh, you know, a bit of a tie-in to Arya. So desperation is becoming a bit normal for her, at least for now. Quote, Her lord father had taught her never to steal but it was growing harder to remember why. Yeah, starving, right? That's why. She she mentions having eaten raw pigeon a few times before yeah. she yeah, right? <laughs> before she finds the 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 bowl of brown, the pot shops, discovers that those yeah. are a thing. So that is we'll talk about adapting quickly. Jeez, she doesn't even think about how gross it was. She's like, "Yeah, I ate some raw pigeons, you know, had to do it." You know, like She needs geez. a spear. She can start spearing some fish. Yeah, she needs She's going to eat raw 
raw something. Maybe raw fish. She needs some antibacterials. Which she needs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but she doesn't get too sick, apparently. So uh, another cool thing about having the commoner's perspective, the perspective from the streets, is that we see how information flows. We see the, the spread of rumor. We see how it works and, and the, the way it, it's really interesting. Let's see another quote here. The talk in Flea Bottom was that the Gold Cloaks had thrown in with the Lannisters. Their commander had raised to a lord um, with lands on the Trident and a seat on the King's Council. She had also heard other things, scary things, things that made no sense to her. Some said her father had murdered King Robert and been slain in turn by Lord Renly. So these rumors play out a bit uh, as she's in the crowd forming after the bells start ringing. She overhears people arguing about whether it was Ned or Renly who killed Robert. Neither believed it was the boar. They'd think, oh, boar, no way the boar killed a king. That's that's too simple, too easy. They prefer the, uh, the more salacious stories. One of them points out that executing traitors at the Great Sept would be unusual. Since when do they nick traitors on Baylor's steps, he says. The other doesn't disagree, but says they're clearly punishing him in some way because... You know, that's, he says, well, they're not going to knight him. And well, that's rumor working for you. That's the grapevine. That's the game of telephone. Whichever term you prefer, that's what we're seeing here. And uh, it's very realistic in my opinion. And both of these people arguing are kind of right in their own way, as it turns out. Obviously, Ned is executed. So that guy was right. But the man who says they wouldn't do that at the Great Sept was right as well, because that wasn't the plan. They didn't bring Ned there to execute him. Joffrey just sort of took things in another direction um, on his own. Well, maybe with a little help from Littlefinger, probably with a little help from Littlefinger. But the point is, the plan was to let him take the black. That was the official idea as understood by Varys and Cersei and all the people there except Joffrey and Littlefinger. And hey, just like the show, when people were confused about what the bells meant, there were some quotes that may have contradicted each other in the show about the bells. Remember that? Well, George was ahead of everything in that regard here as usual. He shows us that when the bells start to ring, people in world get confused about what they mean too. Quote. Is it the boy king that's died now? The king's not dead. That's only summoning bells. One tower tolling. When the king dies, they ring every bell in the city. So who is it died if not the king? It's a summoning, the fat man repeated. I laughed out loud at that. Yeah, a great little comedy bit. Yeah, it's like, oh, yeah, so they were confused about the bells, too. And no wonder all the all the show watchers like us were confused because, hey, it's confusing. There's different meanings to those bells. So I thought that was hilarious. Now, a little a quick little bit of history here. Great. The Great Sept on Visenya's Hill. Uh, some of this we talked about in our recent episode on Old Town and Fire and Blood, but just a, just a few little um, highlights from that. It started during Baylor's reign, meaning construction on the Great Sept and Visenya's Hill in the 160s, and it was finished sometime after his death. It's a very big, um, large construction that wasn't able to finish just during his reign. It eventually overtook Old Town slash the Starry Sept as the center of faith in Westeros, and uh, that's a fairly recent change. Because um, the High Septons uh, living in the Starry Sept in Old Town was, a, you know, multi-century, maybe thousands of years type thing. But uh, so it's kind of a new thing that the High Septon resides in King's Landing. Now, fun thought, uh, slightly tinfoily, maybe. Um, Baylor had the Sept built after, <coughs> had a, excuse me, had a dream about it. Given the commonality of dragon dreams among Targaryens and all the other Targaryens who had strange notions about wildfire, possibly from dreams, like Arian Brightflame and the Mad King, 
well, maybe Baylor dreamed of the great Sept going up in wildfire and somehow saw this as a good thing. Maybe his dream was interpreted in a different way. Or maybe he was trying to avoid something like this. I don't know. The, but that would mean the Sept explodes in the books, which I'm a lot less sure about. However, it's something that George played with, the idea anyway. I mean, there are references to the Sept blowing up or burning. Nothing I can see that qualifies as foreshadowing, but it is discussed. In other words, uh, well, let me just give you the examples. Tyrion later spreads a rumor that Stannis is planning on destroying it. That's part of the propaganda war between Stannis' faction and the Lannister faction. He's just trying to scare people into what kind of man Stannis is. He might not be wrong, actually, but it's not, he's not operating based on information he knows. He's just kind of throwing that out there to make Stannis look bad. And more importantly, they tell, meaning the pyromancers, they tell Tyrion that they found 200 jars buried under the Great Sept. Now, they had that removed. So it's kind of like the wildfire that could have blown up the Sept in the books was removed and, and left there for the show. I guess there could be another stash hidden down there. Maybe this was meant to say y'all didn't find all the wildfire. And even the show gave us some wildfire blowing up in King's Landing during Danny's uh, run there. It just no one talked about it. You could just clearly see green fire there. So um, lots to wonder about there with regards to the future and John Connington and the Bells and Danny in Westeros or in King's Landing and Dragonfire and Wildfire and how all these things might come together. Anyway. Arya is unaware of any of that history. Uh, and of course, she's never heard of Dragon Dreams at this point. She arrives to see a lot of familiar people. But some of them she doesn't know by name. She just knows them by, by look. So Joffrey, she knows, uh, he's described in a way that, as usual, makes him very easy to hate. Cersei is wearing almost Targaryen colors again. She's wearing mourning black, but with crimson streaks. Not golden streaks like the Lannisters would have a lot of times. But, you know, if she had golden streaks, she would look like well, the man with the black and gold armor that's standing there. And that's the very same lord raised up from the city watch that Ashea quoted earlier. That's Jano's slint. I, I can, see, can see why Cersei's colors, she didn't want to match Jano's slint. <laughs> you could say she's not a fan of slint? No! Nice. <laughs> Arya sees Littlefinger, a.k.a. what she sees as the short man with the silvery cape and pointed beard who had once fought a duel for mother. <laughs> the hound and four other Kingsguard are there as well. So one of Marin, Boros, Aris, Preston, or Mandon was elsewhere, almost certainly guarding Tommen and Marcella. Jamie, of course, is not there either. But Barristan Selmy is. Remember that, folks. He's there watching this execution in disguise as a peasant, he later tells Danny. This is Whitebeard, the prequel right here. As Joff makes his announcement, there's confusion and consternation. Varys sees his careful juggling act lose several balls at once. Cersei panics, seeing the immediate threat to her family, a feeling soon to grow when she learns Jamie was captured. The High Septon grabs Joffrey's cape. He's objecting to this as well. Slint gives the order to push Ned down on the block. Littlefinger most likely smiles a huge smile to himself inside. Uh, and Illin Payne brings ice. Like I said, the High Septon grabs Joffrey's cape. Later, he's going to complain about this. He's going to say, you profaned Baylor's steps by having an execution here. He wants concessions. He thinks that he wants the crown to, to do something for the faith in, in return for this. But he's killed by the mob not long from now during the bread riots as a man very much overweight. The, the, the peasants do not look kindly on a guy being so overweight when they're all starving. Joffrey and Slint, of course, are dead now as well. The latter ordered to the block by Jon Snow. 
as uh, Sansa will think in her next chapter that she wishes some hero would throw him down and chop his head off. And hey, that does happen to Slint. Also dead from the scene later are two of the Kingsguard, maybe both of the ones who were there, maybe not. And of course, the heroic Yorin. Most of the characters in this scene are alive still. Uh, Arya, Sansa, of course, Cersei, the Hound, most of the Kingsguard. So whether they are punished for their role in this, well, maybe that's yet to come. But most, like I said, most of them are still alive. So, well, that just shows the Seven have a little power. <laughs> so hopefully for Arya that she'll learn or at least realize that her father's words were forced. He says, quote, he plotted to dispose and murder uh, um, Robert's son and seize the throne for himself, which is just ridiculous. Ned would never try to seize the throne. Hopefully Arya has confidence in that later, knowing that it's all a lie. In a bit of a parallel to John trying to save fake Arya later, Yorin breaks the rules and involves himself with the affairs of the realm by hiding Arya from the Lannisters. Of course, it's not the first time he told Ned about Cat seizing Tyrion. That's definitely interfering with the politics of the realm. So Lord uh, Eddard had always been good to the Watch and to Yorin himself, and Yorin just returns the favor. It's a subversion of the concept of vows that we talked about early in this episode. A theme that grows in importance throughout the series, especially with the Night's Watch, but also with the King's Guard and other vows, like maesterly vows from Sam, things like that. Humanity tends to win out over rigid enforcement of the rules. If it's the choice between enforcing a rule and letting a young girl die, I think most of us would find that a pretty easy choice, especially if there's little risk to ourselves. And even if there is risk to ourselves, I think it's a pretty easy choice, at least from a moral perspective. Actually doing it is another thing. But... Anyway, it's interesting, too, that Yorin, when he first meets Arya, this is, some, this is some things that people in the Facebook group pointed out, or maybe it was Blick, maybe both. Y'all are very uh, attentive and, and good at catching these things. When Yorin first meets Arya, she's all bedraggled and uh, looking like she does here. It's because it's, it's right after she returns from being lost for several days after fleeing, uh, in, after chasing cats into the basement and seeing Boris and Illyria. When she, when uh, Yorin first sees her, he says, oh, maybe we shouldn't speak in front of your son like this. But here, in this moment, treating Arya like a boy isn't just him making an honest mistake. It's, hey, you want to live? You better pretend you're a boy. Not a smart boy? Is that what you were going to say? It's, he's, uh, you know, rough with her, but he's saving her life. I mean, not only does he save her life, he saves her from seeing her father die. He makes her not He's not just saving a Stark. He's protecting a child. He's, the empathy in this moment is really important. It's not just saving her life. He doesn't want her to be traumatized either. He's a very good man. But there's also some major foreshadowing for Arya's future. Of course, her father's death will stick with her forever. But other bits of her future are uh, they're, they're mentioned a little bit here. Here's a quote. A gull wheeled overhead as she made her way down the hill toward Flea Bottom. Arya glanced at it thoughtfully but it was well beyond the reach of her stick. It made her think of the sea. Maybe that was the way out. Old Nan used to tell stories of boys who stowed away on trading galleys and sailed off into all kinds of adventures. Maybe Arya could do that too. Whoa, maybe indeed. No maybe about it, really. It's a definite thing. The, 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 the maybe part is whether this is how her arc will end, like we see in the show. Will she? She's already done it. Yeah, she's already stowed away <laughs> on a trading galley and sailed off into all kinds of adventures. She may uh, do that in the future without stowing away. Maybe she'll uh, sail off to the west in the end. Made her think of a sea. I like the line, maybe that was the way out. 
uh, that to me is is pretty poignant as to how she may end her arc, uh, the way out of of society and, and feeling uh, the way she feels. We'll see. It's going to be really interesting. Old Nan comes through again there because it's Old Nan telling her those stories, and uh, that's what's what she's thinking about, and that's what reminds her of it. So uh, George R. R. Martin, also a little quick little moment here, also about maybe a reference to the sea when he describes Arya being carried away by the crowd towards the great sept it's she describes it as or he describes it as the human current carrying her along so a little bit of a sea reference there joe B- buckley says it's a it's fitting well fitting that it's a quiet gentle moment for ned's death rather than something brutal and bloody uh even though it is brutal and bloody it's not portrayed that way until joff you know makes santa look at ned's head then it's pretty brutal and what else here? It's interesting, too, to see uh, Littlefinger's reaction. And one of the reasons we think we know that he was involved with Joffrey is that we see Varys react. We see uh, Cersei react. We see several people like, whoa, what's going on with Joffrey ordering this? And Littlefinger doesn't seem to bat an eye. So it, it definitely implies he knows what's coming. It's one of his favorite chapters. <laughs> this one, he loves seeing that die. Uh, Abraham from Flick points out that Arya fighting the crowd to get to her father and no one's hardly even noticing. She's just like, pulls out her sword even and she's trying to just fight her way through and she's furious about what's happening. Abraham points out this might be very similar to what it's like to fight an army of the dead with it's just this endless sea of people that they hardly even notice when they're hurt and they just keep coming. That's pretty cool. Pretty cool uh, observation there. I like that. Also from Flick, Tree Girl is asking questions about how we know about this uh, execution from Littlefinger. So uh, not only do we have this bit about him not being surprised and the idea that Joff isn't very clever. He's not an imaginative guy. That by itself is not enough, though. I'm sure you would agree that those two pieces of evidence are, well, they're pieces of evidence, but they're not necessarily compelling by themselves. However, we have two other pieces of evidence. One, later on in Clash with Kings, Varys tells Tyrion that he's pretty sure this is what happened. He's like, well, you know, maybe someone gave him the idea. <laughs> you know, and of course, it's pretty clear who he's referring to, the someone being. It's not Varus himself. We know that goes very much against Varus's wishes and his plans in the meantime. Littlefinger also tells Sansa that he manipulated Joffrey into having the jousting dwarfs, which both implies that he knows how to handle Joffrey, and it shows us an, a parallel example of what may have happened here uh, with the execution. So I think that's pretty good. John Heggie points out that a Dothraki's horse is sacrificed in the pyre when a call dies anyway. Obviously, that's a reference to uh, um, the previous chapter, which is cool. Uh, I guess we have a couple other uh, mentions from that chapter here. <laughs> a couple other questions that got put here. Uh, what what um, the, the mention from that, these are all three comments that are related. I'll just right. communicate them. Gotcha. It was just a... John Hagee was talking about how a Dothraki's horse is sacrificed in the pyre when a call dies anyway. Bernie True, and they killed in. his horse, and that's what would have happened anyway. Yeah, Good point. Good and point. Bernie chimes in with, like, you know, Miri Mazdor was trying to take that from Drogo. She knew it, unless Drogo mm. is now riding Miri Mazdor. <laughs> so, yeah, John adds, yeah, she was burned in his pyre, so he's riding her to the Nightlands. <laughs> and I just had to share that because the image was very clear in my mind of Jason Momoa 
riding that woman. Maybe it's backwards. Maybe she's riding him. That would be a little easier to picture. That would be easier, but I I mean, I don't picture it. I'm picturing him. (laughs) That's harder to picture, but I'm with you. (laughs) Anyway, folks, that is all we have for today. Next up for next week is uh, Brand 7, the one where they go down into the crypts, a.k.a. the gang gets a history lesson. Sansa 6, the one where Joffrey makes her book, a.k.a. the the gang browses heads. (laughs) <laughs> Daenerys 9, the gang helps Danny recover, a.k.a. the one where she suffocates Drogo. Tyrion 9, the gang hears all about the Battle of the Camps, a.k.a. the one where Tywin yells, They have my son! <laughs> John 9, the one where John runs off, a.k.a. the gang rescues John from dumminess. Catelyn 11, the gang gets loud about some king, a.k.a. the one where Rob gets promoted. And finally, the last chapter of Daenerys of Game of Thrones, Daenerys 10, the one where, whoa, holy crap, dragons, a.k.a. the gang hatches some eggs. <laughs> Thanks to everyone who came live. Thanks to Ashea and Joe Buckley. Thanks to our uh, History of Westeros mods on the Facebook group, posting the chapters every week. Thanks big time to all of our patrons. You all know who you are. You make all this possible. Your support allows us to put all this effort into coverage of books history stuff we do all our live streams everything thanks to claridox.de michael claridox's maps getting some love from george when we were in ireland that is what they deserve we will continue to showcase his awesomeness throughout our videos thanks also to kevin mcleod for the little intro music that michael clarfeld found for us and to jesse kowal and jesse townsend From our for our regular I, I set music. off a little co- coughing about yeah. among us. Still a little con crud going around yeah, here. Yeah, and mm. in this house here. Yep, hard to get over that. I got we I got it in uh, Europe and it just came with me back here. Just won't go away, darn it. That European cold. Yeah, it's the unfamiliar type of cold. <laughs> if it was an American cold, I would have beaten it by now. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, folks, that is it for this time. We will see you all next week for the final episode of A Game of Thrones and then onward for A Clash of Kings. A reminder that we'll have a Q&A episode in between the beginning of Clash and the end of A Game of Thrones that will have Lady Gwyn and Sir Buckley as live guests, which we will be taking questions and reviewing the book as a whole. That should be great. Not only should we have some great takes for you, but they should have some great takes as well, as they always do. I'm excited to hear what they have to say and share all that with you. Until next time, you know what's up. Valar reread us.